The Carl Nelson Show. And good morning, Wake Up Squad, and thanks again for starting your Tuesday with us. Later, former FBI agent Dr. Tyron Powers will be in our classroom. Dr. Powers will examine some of the crime and educational problems in the country and explain how they are connected. But before we hear from Dr. Powers, Manisha Henley from Everytown for Gun Safety will discuss why gun violence disproportionately impacts black and brown communities. But to get us started this morning, D.C. Entertainment Executive Bo Sampson is here. Good morning, Bo. What's going on? How you You're doing? going on. <laughs> Good yeah, to have you, know. you Bo. Yes, sir. Bo, and thanks yeah. for waking up with us so early, Bo. But you, you've written a book. It's about to come out. So give us a preview. Why did you decide to write a book? Hey, Carl, man. The reason why I, want, I wrote a book is because people kept asking me, man, Bo, what, what are you doing, man? So the name of the book is What Does Bo Do? And, you know, it's the thing about it is I've been in the entertainment business like 35 years. I stumbled into business through uh, hanging out. I couldn't sing, couldn't dance, but I could out hang you. People like yourself um, have contributed to my career because it, uh, it takes a team of people to get somebody to the next level. You can exit, you can tweet it, whatever y'all doing. It takes a team to get to the next level, no matter what you do. And uh, that is you know, so I've true. been in the business a long time, and um, you know, had a lot of fun. You got to try to find your passion in life, and uh, I found it, and found a way uh, to make a couple dollars with it. So, uh, tell how did you find? How did you figure out this was what you were put on this planet to do? How did you figure out this was your passion? Well, you know what's really funny. Your um, my first love was sports. And uh, mm-hmm. basketball, so the basketball didn't didn't work out the way I thought it it would, and uh, you know, God led me to uh, get in the music business. It took me about two and a half years. I got with a company called MCA Records. So I worked with uh, a lot of people in the very beginning, from Mary J. Blige to New Edition. I done promoted music from the Electric Slide to Rump Shaker, from gospel to hip hop. You name it, I've done it. Country promote a lot of different music all right so next stop after you decided promoting music what happened um i I stumbled into business basically by uh trying to uh find my passion but the passion is based on um you know trying to put time in. you got to find a role model you know in order Mm -hmm. to get a uh, you, you find a role model in life and what you're trying to do, and you find some people that have done it before. And uh, what I did is found a couple guys that were in the business for years. I talk about it in my book. And they helped me um, put me in position on on trying to find out what I need to do to, to get in this entertainment business. It's a tough business to get in. I didn't get caught up in all the uh, side attractions, never had any uh, substances or, uh, uh, you know, I don't have any kids call. I wait every Father's Day, no balloon showed up. So I ain't get <laughs> caught up into all the other stuff that was going around the entertainment business. Well, you, you were kind of lucky then, uh, Bo. But we know you, most of, well, many of the folks know you from the VIP room. 
yeah, ask yeah. out of history. Can can you tell us about the history of the VIP room? Folks, well, you used to hear about the VIP room. It was in New York growing up. You, you gotta go to the VIP room when you go to DC. <laughs> you used yeah, to hear about that place. Room. Yeah, the VIP room is a place where if you're not a VIP, if you walk in, you turn into a VIP. It was started by my father, Sam Sampson. Very important people. That's what it means. So we, you know, ran out for different functions for wedding receptions. Uh, uh, we we celebrate your life if you leave leave this earth, and uh, we 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 have a lot of fun. You know, anybody can come to the VIP room. You can, uh, you know, call us, and we we try to make you be feel special on those days. Right, and you were there during the I guess I wouldn't call it a renaissance, but uh, the, the DC mu- uh, music scene go, uh, uh, was was happening, and. Tell me about that. How that how that house music transfer into go go music? What happened? Well, you know, it's really uh, funny. Uh, my everybody's life is already written. So my my thing is, you know, the VIP was a place where you could, uh, you know, have fun. Uh, the the club scene in D.C. was basically, um, you know, why I got into business because I used to hang out, and my father, who created the VIP room, had his own you know, venues. So I learned from my father uh, how to run a business. And um, that that kind of started the ball going because of the fact that then I transferred to the music business. So I already knew how to uh, run an operation, but the music business, uh, hanging out in the clubs, that's how we broke music. We exposed the product through the streets. And, 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 and basically the streets were the, were the clubs, you know, the retail, uh uh, the clubs and the videos of how we broke records. And it call, it kind of all worked together, you know, because of the fact I had experience to know what people wanted, you know, even from a DJ standpoint. That's how we got the buzz. We got the buzz from the streets, and the streets were, you know, hanging out in the clubs. Now the club scene has changed now because now they have bars and restaurants. They don't, they, it's not really clubs anymore. And see, the bars and restaurants technically have entertainment in order for yeah. you to come eat and drink where the revenue comes from. So back in your day, they had no bars? It was just, just music? It, it, was, it was basically really clubs. You know, you had the Foxtrap. Yeah, uh, I remember that Classics, one. the Ibex. Can't forget about the Ibex. I know you got some listeners out there that hung <laughs> at the Ibex and uh, the East Side and all these. These were spots for entertainment. People like to have fun, you know, at, where your cabarets, you had your your, uh, your old school people from Hollywood Breeze, uh, Maniac, M- Maniac McCloud, who played music to entertain you. Because after you finish working, you want you want to enjoy yourself on the weekends or even during the weekday. Uh, having said that, seven after the top of the hour, can you still do that today? Are there still clubs? I'm sure, that, but the music is different. The, the times are different. Do you still hang out, or, or, or do you just oh, live yeah, on your memories? Definitely. I got to keep close to the you know, pulse of what's going on, you know. And, uh, you know, going back to my book, my book is coming out at the top of the year, and, um, you know, all this stuff worked together, you know. Um, you know, for all your church goers, Roman 828. You know, you look it up if you don't know it. All things work together for God who's according to his purpose. And uh, that, that's been my life story, you know, technically, you know, to, um, you know, keep God first. And uh, I use that as a tool to maneuver through this entertainment business. It's a very tough business because you're dealing with all different types of people.
Yeah, uh, you can't lose if you go by that creed, that's for sure. But I want to talk to you about the music, the go-go music. Why was it seem, it seems like it was just constrained, maybe I'm wrong, uh, to within the DMV. Did it, was it a hit in Baltimore? Did it, did it go down yeah. in the Virginia side? Why, explain that for us. Well, you know what's really funny, the go-go music, I had an opportunity to work with uh, uh, Miss Kathy Hughes, Tra- Tracy and Deirdre on a documentary we did on TV1. It was called The Beat Don't Stop. And The Beat Don't Stop, if you haven't seen it, definitely pull it up. But The Beat Don't Stop talks about how people uh, come in our town, they take our, the sound of our music, but they won't call it go-go. The Beyonce record, mm-hmm. Crazy in Love, the guy... The guy from D.C., Rich Harrison, did that record, the biggest record in the world. Uh, they take the sound, but they don't call it. You look at uh, Salt and Pepper's record. That's pretty much the junkyard band they sample, but they didn't call it. And, um, you know, so the go-go has gone all the way around the world. I mean, you look at the butt. Uh, the butt record is one of the biggest records of all, party records of all times played across the country. Then you got got a DJ named uh, DJ Cool has uh, who has um, you know taken the hip hop and go go and made it go national. So the the music has been national, not only national but around the world. But people just don't understand it. They don't call it go go. But the unfortunate part. The reason why it hasn't gotten the recognition, in my opinion, this is my opinion, is right. because we hadn't worked together. Because in order for the music get outside I-95, you got to uh, kind of team up with people. You know, you got a lot of, you know, it's a funny story that I have. I, you know, I work with EU and um, one of your sister stations, you know, they have the Tom Joyner Cruise. And um, it's funny because um, the butt, has indirectly been used by a lot of different people, Fantasia, who perform, who performs the butt all over the country, uh, technically uh, used the record uh, when she performed. And I technically had sat down with a guy that used to manage with Fantasia and gave it an idea to work with maybe uh, Sugar Bear EU. He took the idea perform, and, and ended up performing the overnight scenario and uh, the butt on the Essence Festival. Then we got back on the Tom Joyner cruise, and uh, technically uh, Sugar Bear um, was in the crowd, and Fantasia had dropped the mic, didn't know Sugar Bear was dead, and Sugar Bear picked the mic up and jumped on stage and finished the song off oh, wow. uh, on stage. You, you know, so the the go-go is, is, is known, but we haven't identified that this is go-go. Let me bring in Kevin here, because Kevin's a music guy as well, bro. Hey, Kevin, Kevin, good morning. Who's that, Kev? Oh, dear. <laughs> What's happening? How y'all feeling? What's going on, Kevin? <laughs> you the man, bro. You are man, the man. I ain't the man. Come on now. <laughs> but, man, you took us down memory lane, the Mark IV, the classics, the Ibex. Yes. Man, I, I tried to get my band in the Ibex a couple of times, man. And um, those were the days, man. You hang out at the Mark IV at, at lunchtime. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, yeah. Know. Ain't no doubt. I used to sneak in all the clubs, you know, whatever yeah. it took. Right. I, I learned how to do the freaky deek in, uh, at lunchtime at the Mark IV. Oh, man. I don't know about that one now. I wasn't with you there. I'm, I'm putting the disclosure right now. <laughs> yeah, it was a bunch of people from New York came in, and it was, supposedly it was a new dance craze. And um, But then mm. when, you, when you get back to, to the go-go sound, you know, Kirk Franklin came to D.C. specifically 
to learn the go-go beat, if you will. Oh, and he, yeah. And he put it's, it in it's a, out there. a couple of his songs. Yes. Go yeah, go. yeah, he did the song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, Kevin, which songs? Because, you know, for us, you know, who uh, who, who are not native uh, Washingtonians, you know, we, we know about the song. We know some of the songs, but we don't know all of them. So what, what uh, song did Kirk Franklin sample? Uh, well, I'm not sure. It wasn't a sample. He actually hired... Um, one of the bands, it was either EU or... Well, he had, he hired musicians. Yeah, he hired the musicians. I'm yeah. Going to Die, I think that's the name of the record. And yeah. um, Before Matter of fact, I the first it, time he played yeah. it was at my church, First Baptist of Glen Arden. You know, he did it live. I worked with Kirk Franklin, too, as far as promoting his music. Yeah. Uh, also. Mm-hmm. Right. And that was a big thing for him to do that. It it, it gave Go-Go another dimension, and, and as well as the gospel world. Well, I'll give you a tip for the day, you guys. There's an app called We Sample. And if you look up any of your favorite go-go bands, Junkyard Band, EU, Chuck Brown, of course, who is the godfather, Trouble Funk, you'll see that all these major groups have sampled um, the go-go. From Curtis Blow to Red Hot Chili Peppers to Will Smith, you'd be surprised. But the thing, the reason why, in my opinion, this is my opinion, <laughs> it hasn't got past I-95, is because people haven't worked together. We had a, um, I, I promoted the music through Uptown. They didn't have a staff at the time, and Rare Essence was signed to MCA Records, and they had a record that uh, I was able to talk Mr. Andre Harrell into putting the song on the soundtrack of the movie, and it was the Locket record. But the problem was the group had gotten off the record label before we got started because most groups don't come out right away. So they felt that they needed to get off the label. But um, it's a lot of different elements of go-go in music, but people don't know. Well, I, know? Want you to, I want you to entertain the idea that I've got why go-go hasn't gone so far, but we got these promotional considerations to handle first. Right. I'll tell you, we'll take the break. When we come back, Kevin, I'll let you ask Bo that question. Right. Folks, you can join us, too, on this conversation with Bo Sampson. He's a music executive, entertainment executive based in Washington, D.C. He's got a book coming out, Chronicles His Life in the Industry. It's called What Does Bo Do? You want to join this conversation, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. We'll take your phone calls after the traffic and weather update right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450, WOL, where information is power. Hi, good morning again, family. 21 minutes at the top there. We're talking about music, entertainment, actually, with Bo Sampson. Bo's an entertainment executive in Washington, D.C. He's written a book, by the way. It's called What Does Bo Do? The book's going to be out early next month, and he talks about his life and times in the music scene in Washington, D.C. Kevin's also with us. Hey. Uh, you know, so, Kevin, you had a question for Bo. I do. Um, my... We were talking about why Gogo hasn't gone further. It's not international, except on some sort of secret tip. And uh, here's what I think is happening and has happened with Gogo music. First of all, it's perfect for the live audience. It's the sound of DC. The live audiences go wild. They fill places up, and it's just pandemonium in a Gogo uh, atmosphere. Right. 
Um, and what happens with that is people claim it as their own, right? They were getting cassettes back in the cassette days. They're getting CDs now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. And, and, and they keep it personal to themselves. It's the sound of D.C. Remember, here's a quick aside. Remember when the well, the the guy on the corner of uh, Florida Avenue wanted to stop the record store from playing. Oh yeah, the go go mm-hmm. music so loud, and then don't people, mute DC, baby. Right, it became a, a, a movement around the world. Uh, yes, people were everywhere. Yeah, that was international on that block because the guy was. They said if you move in DC, then if you can't handle this, you don't need to be here. And so many people took over, but I think they stopped that occasional uh, eventually. Um, but my second observation of go-go is the mm-hmm. whole idea it's the technical aspects the copy, right copywriting pat- patenting getting record deals and uh, being able to uh then stay focused instead of taking the money you get and then you know use it yeah. on on whatever they use it on outside of continually promoting the product i, I think mm-hmm. that that's something um also i believe that because go-go music you know, I was there, I was playing at the beginning of of the Go Go Sound. It's all about okay. a jam. It's basically you play a song, a, a well known mm. song, and then you jam mm. on it, and then that jam session turns into almost another song, including the congas, the uh, the timbales, the the uh, cowbell, the bongos, the congas. You know, eventually it all evolved with just that breakdown. And then you could sing anything over that breakdown, right? And yet, so no one was paying for the rights to use the other song either, even though it evolved into a new song. And one last thing, uh, Bo, and then I'll let you Mm -hmm. take over. Okay. Remember the young senators were. Yes, sir. Young Jimmy Dugan in the Jimmy Dugan in them. Yeah, shout out to Jimmy Dugan. Then they were. a go-go band until they joined up with Eddie Kendricks and then Motown told them that they're never going to play on their own anymore. They're, they're, they're officially the backup band for Eddie Kendricks or else. And so I think some of that happens in the go-go music. Right. Now, you take it away, sir. Correct me where I'm wrong. Well, well, well you know, what's real funny. Even I had a birthday party in historically um, at the VIP. I tell you how everything works together where E.U. Belladon and Stinky Dink played together probably for the very first time. Wow. And yeah. it, was a, it was a real good uh, Collaboration. surprise for me, you know, for the go-go bands, uh, you know, to join together at my at my father's place, you know. Right. Uh, and then James Funk was there and DJ Cool. But going back to what you're talking about, um, it's real funny because a lot of people don't know that Bustin' Loose was released locally. Then... My company, who I used to work for, MCA Records, picked the record up. But nobody knows that. Nobody knows that Trouble Funk is the most sampled, one of the most sampled uh, groups of all time. That's why I told you guys to go to this app called We Sample, Uh and you'll learn a little history. Um, And the thing that's real funny is, um, you know, Go Go, when that that, um, Don't Mute DC happened on 7th Street, the way... Uh, Sugar Bear and James Funk got on the BET Awards at the time was because of the fact that they don't mute. The guy Jesse Collins and his crew had saw it because it was around the world. They were trying to stop these uh, uh, 
to stop the uh, owner at a uh, seven and T yeah, from playing player. the music loud. Yeah, he and then play, everybody he came out. out in the street, big speaker. Yeah, so it was an interesting mm, bus stop, I tell you. <laughs> yeah, so they saw it around the world, so they decided to have him on the show. And this was in London, Japan, and uh, I give Miss Hughes a, a lot of credit because she helped us do she the documentary on the beat don't stop, and that was in the documentary. If people have seen it, or haven't seen it. But um, I mean, the thing about it, I'm a I'm a DC, I'm a homer. I'm, I mean, if if the commanders go down, I'm going down with the ship. Matter of fact, the wizards are going down. I'm going down. Matter of fact, I told somebody the other day, I'm I'm in charge of the new Washington volleyball team because we ain't got nothing to look forward to. Man, I, wow. I'm a homer, so you know. Okay. When I first got to MCA Records. They had a touch of Ben's uh, Chili Bowl in your day. Oh, my gosh. That's right. That's right. Ben's Chili Bowl. You know, when I first got to MCA Records, my first goal was to uh, try to, you know, help the sound of the city become national. Um, and it has become national. we just not getting enough recognition. I mean, it's been 50 years like hip-hop. But we have to unify. You know, I tell people all the time, you can't get to the next level unless you partner with somebody. Didn't, didn't Kentucky Fried Chicken partner with Taco Bell? Didn't XM with Sirius? Uh, you know, yeah. so you have to partner with somebody. It's about getting the right record in order to expose um well, well Bo, let me jump in and ask you this though. When when you took it to MCA, what was their? How did they receive it? Was they hey? Well, uh, they first. When they first got there, uh, uh-huh. Daryl Brooks was actually involved in um, in that transition as far as uh, helping the, the group Rare Essence get signed to Uptown, which was through my company. And the thing about it, the problem was they couldn't find those songs, you know, that would go national. You know, but they, they weren't patient and got off the label. I feel like I would have been able to get that record. I mean, that was my goal. They had to throw in a parade for me. Oh, uh, y'all, if I got is hot, you know. But, but, what I'm trying to get at, though, Bo, is how do they decide which record is they're going to get behind, the record companies? You, you Obviously, well, you prepare them a bunch of records them. and then they pick one. Right. They record a bunch of records. This is any artist. Then they pick from the best. They do feedback. Uh, they might pass the song out to different parts of the country, like Florida, Chicago, uh, Dallas, whatever, and then they get feedback. Then they make a decision which record they focus in on. That's with every company. Uh, and then they shoot a video. You know, they do all that, you know, um, you know, trying to push the record. But it's behind-the-scenes things that have to happen in order to, right. to make the record national. All right, I'm going to come back to that in a moment, but 30 minutes after the time, Mark is in Baltimore, wants to join our conversation. He's online, too. Good morning, Mark. Uh, yes, good morning, gentlemen. And by the way, I'm wishing your audience a happy Hanukkah. Today is the 58th day festo goes through this Friday. A question I have is for the future of go-go music. What are you doing to attract youth to carry on the go-go uh, tradition? Are you going to schools to promote it? Are you going to recreation centers or faith-based institutions and the like to at least expose young people to what it is so it could carry on to the tradition and the music that you're talking about? Or what's being done about that so it will last a long time? Well, you know, it's real funny. Uh, there's a transition in the go-go music. Now uh, the younger people call the sound the bounce beat. This, that's their version of the go-go music. The problem is they ain't got a, a record outside I-95 or e- even inside 95 to get exposure to this this sound because 
See, people don't understand. You know, if you have a hit record, somebody's going to call you so they can use you to make money. Because at the end of the day, if they can't get nobody to come to your performance, then they can't use you to make money. Now, the bounce beat crowd has a following locally which is considered go-go, but outside of I-95, they don't have that. But my, my take on what I'm trying to do, and, you know, I was a point guard, sir. I passed the ball for a shoot. I'm trying to pass knowledge on to the younger people on what you need to do to make yourself successful. The social media is okay, but in order to get the mainstream, you have to still have radio. Radio and social media can put you to the next level. You need a you know, you need a team of people to understand it. Just recording a record is not gonna get you um to the next level. So I try to use my knowledge and influence, not taking away the creativity of the young people that are playing the go go beat, you know, sound like T O B and and all from the backyard band, all these groups. And I try to give them knowledge, okay, you record the record, but you gotta come up a way to get it to other people that are not familiar with this sound. I don't know if yeah. I answered it the way Yeah, and we'll come up on break, but I want to ask you this, though, because when you talked about the, the record executives, they sit around, they figure out, uh, you know, they, have, they test the music, though, when you when you, when you got signed to an artist. What happens next? After they sign it and, and they decide they're going to get behind they this particular... They put money in a budget, and then uh -huh. they, the budget is to record the music. Then there's another uh -huh. budget for marketing. Uh, uh, to get the record, you got publicists, you got people, uh, A&R, creative people that can groom the people, talk to people in public, don't say the wrong thing. All that contributes to everything in order to um, get them to the next level. So you just, it's not just you record the record and then that's it. You know, a lot of social media people, uh, you might have a million followers and you might not have nobody following you because you can manipulate the social media to make it look like that. Um, but, but hold that thought right there because we'll come up on break. When we come back, though, because we've heard about artists being broke. So when they when the record company assigns uh, uh, the money to for, for particular projects, you know, whether it be for, for ARs, for pushing, for making the, 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 the product mm -hmm. and all of that kind of stuff, they got. They want their money back at some point. Yeah, so if you explain matter. how that works when we get back, bro, I really appreciate okay. it because you know we got a lot of fit folks out here want to get in the music business. Don't oh, understand yeah. how it really oh, yeah. works, but you know how it works. So we're going to lean on you and Kevin to help us out. As I mentioned, we got to step aside and get caught up with the latest news, traffic, and weather in our different cities. We're back in four minutes, though, at twenty-six minutes away from the top of the hour. We both, Samson and Kevin, is with us as well, right here in Baltimore on ten ten WOLB in the DMV, run FM ninety-five point nine and AM four. 1450 WOL where information is power. And good morning again, family. 20 minutes away from the top of the hour with our guest Bo Sampson. Bo has written a book. What does Bo do? He's a major player in the entertainment industry in Washington, D.C. He was there with the heights of Go Go. And this is what we're discussing music, entertainment. You want to join our conversation? Reach out to us at 800 450 7876. Before we go back to Bo, I just want to remind you that coming up later this morning, former FBI agent Dr. Tyrone Powers will be in our classroom. Dr. Powers is going to examine the crime and educational problems across 
across the country. Says they're connected. Also going to hear from Manisha Henley from Every Town for Gun Safety. She's going to discuss why gun violence disproportionately impacts black and brown communities. And later this week, uh, Temp- the Temple University scholar, Dr. Nara Dove, will join us. Also, Maryland State Senator uh, Jill Carter will be here, along with veteran civil rights activist William Mukasa Ricks and Morgan State professor Dr. Ray Wimbush. So if you're in Baltimore, uh, make sure your radio's locked in tight on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. So, Bo, before we left, we're talking about when, when you go into, because you worked on both sides in the music industry. When you, you go in there with a record and, and the record companies, okay, they sign you to a deal. They're putting all this money behind you. And all, most of the time, you just want to hear your record on the, on the radio and you're all excited. But help us with the accounting, because we've heard so many uh, uh, artists that at some point that they've sold millions of records, and yet they're broke and filed for bankruptcy. What happens? There's a lot of entities uh, in order for an artist to become successful. And um, people don't understand there's a business behind the music business, as they say. And um, it's an investment by the company to create a demand for them to make money and hopefully the artists. But a lot of people don't know that people aren't buying music no more. At one point they charge the expenses that you had to do, whether it was travel or recording, um, the way you dress, all that goes back to the, um, to the artist. So um, at the end of the day, the expenses are against what they're made for the profit. So people are not buying music no more. They renting it. Streaming is like a timeshare right now. You have access to music, but you don't own it. So that model has changed. So right now, people aren't making money on royalties like they used to. And then if you get a certain amount of streams, you don't make no money. Then you can make money by publishing, which you write the song, but a lot of artists are sampling other people's songs. They got to pay those people. Then you make money by shows if you're not popular enough to have somebody hire you for a show you can't make no money most artists make money um if they have recorded a certain amount of music that has been exposed to the public um so i i you know working in a company like mca i could take your whole family out to eat for thanksgiving and come back with dispense report and say that uh well you know i i use this money to um, talk to the program director or talk to the club jock about Mary J. Blige, and they would take that money and charge that money back to Mary, and Mary don't even know. So she don't make no money off the sales or the expenses that the record company has spent. So oh, that's wow. just a tiny example. Yeah. But, I, you know, in my book, I got a lot of information. I got glossary, all kinds of scenarios. You want to know about the business, you know, I feel like I put 35 years in this business, and um, I know pretty much every angle. But the key to anything that I've done is research. Mm. Yeah, I, that's key. It changes. I mean, we went from physical to digital. You know, and the bottom line, a lot of people just don't understand what you sound like and what you look like is not the end result. Sometimes you can have you you can become famous right now, you guys. If you got enough hype on you, you know, you can have no talent and become famous. Explain, you know? explain that now. Uh, hold on a second, Bo. It's 16 away from the top. Yeah, Kevin's got a question about the, the, the okay. record industry himself. Kevin. Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, you were talking about. Is Kevin there? 
Uh, oh, I guess. Oh, Did we lose I, him? Uh, no, <laughs> no, no. We, remember, I had to do something during the break. <laughs> and anyway, so um, my question is: as you were uh, talking about whether or not the streams work and those things, let's back up a, a second. Uh, you you touched on what I was thinking, and that is when you're covering other songs. A lot of go go starts with the cover of a song. Does that diminish their ability to get yep. a, re- a recording contract? Well, well, the bottom line is you you people don't understand if you perform somebody's song, technically, the publishing company can come after you. Like if you perform a cover song, like right, Lauren right. Hill right now. She can't perform her songs live the way she used to is because she got in a disagreement with the record company. Uh, so she can't perform the same 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 way. She has to do it differently because oh. BMI and ASCAP will come after. If you perform, if the go-go bands perform Sweet Love, they're supposed to be really paying publishing, even if you perform it live, but they don't know that. Well, what about you the very? So you're saying the variation on the song, the variation on the theme of the song, then, right? Then you becomes... you you're supposed to pay for it if you perform it live. You can ask any band. I mean, some of the people might might not know, but any band that performs a cover, they're really supposed to be paying out for that. Well, what you know, about... not to. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Now, if you put a record out, and like I said, a lot of stuff is in my book, but there's a company that clears cover tunes name that like book you do again a, please name that book again. what does bo do what does bo do yeah so Avail- that's the name available of the book. at yeah. amazon right yeah well it's coming out the first of the year and um another thing i like to say um and you know everything works together for me you know i try to partner with people that are in town you know so i got a um a couple shirts i did with uh what does bo do off my cover and i partner with a a guy um, that does I Love the Go-Go, DC Go-Go, Mitch Craft, mm-hmm. and he helped me put the shirt together. We're going to donate some of that money to charity because my thing is my whole focus on everything is to help people because yeah. people help me. That's and I'm just passing the ball. It's like give and go in basketball. I pass it. I don't know if it's going to come back. So the demo record, if you're trying to get a deal, so to speak, yes, does it have to be you know very well produced and you know have a, have a strong, I don't know, a strong beat, a strong grasp to it, and how many cuts do you need on a demo? And, and hold on, let me throw something else on the fire here for you, Bo, for what, what uh, Kevin just said. How yeah. do you know the record company won't steal that idea and give it to another group they're working? But go ahead. You They're can doing ask that all the time. I mean, the record business is a tricky business, let me tell you, because they could take the budget from one artist and move it over to the other artist, and they don't even know and charge it back. I had a friend that just told me recently one of the projects that she had, she, when the statement came out, they had pushed the um, uh, budget uh, from one other person's budget to the other, and they charged them back. So it's very tricky. You know, Mary, for years, who I worked with real closely from the very beginning, uh, they charged some things back to her, and her, her financial situation wasn't as good as it should have been because of the money they, they spent. I mean, the whole My Life album, and um, they didn't they when they put that album out, they didn't even clear the sample. So they had to come back and pay Roy Ayers money. A lot of stuff you don't oh, see. Wow. Yeah, they didn't clear it. You know, but people aren't educated. They think just because um, 
somebody uh, has the music like on social media that you're doing big business. I call it what I call the people that ain't doing the right thing. I call it fake famous. You know, people <laughs> think you popular, but you really ain't. It's all about. Well, well let me throw this in here because, Bo, because a friend of mine in the music mm-hmm. business, he says everybody yeah. in the music business, every artist has been beat at some point. True? Well, it's possible. I can't speak for them, but if they don't know the business, they all. You know, they don't. Un- you don't understand the business until you get in it, or somebody teaches you. And most of the people they're teaching you, they already been in the business. They probably got ripped off, so they ain't gonna tell you. They feel that you got ripped off. They might have got ripped off. I mean, we wa- We looked at the new edition story, who I work with very closely. That stuff was real deal. What they talked about on that documentary. That's why the documentary was so big. Them ki- them guys. They paid their dues. They got everything they deserve, but it comes if you keep sticking with it, it'll happen for you. You gotta believe in yourself. There's no blueprint plan on being successful. Now going back to the Google, I didn't mention a lot of people don't know that Ray that had uh recorded a song with Heavy D. And it never came out. A lot of stuff that's recorded, and I always tell people at these studios, ninety five percent of your music Nobody heard of it in your family and friends. People go to the studio and just record. But what about the other piece, the social media, a team of people to try to get your record out past your family and friends? Because some people just want to be popular. They ain't caring about the business. And I talk about it a lot in my book, you know, little different scenarios. I mean, the record business, the entertainment business, even entertainment. Look at Terrence Howard. What are you saying on the, on the movie side? How much he got paid for Empire? Look it up. He said it. I didn't say it. Right. Yeah. He says he got beat. Ten away from the time. I got a tweet question for you. Tweet says, please ask your guest to talk about Spike Lee's use of go-go in the film School Days. Okay. Well, Spike Lee just actually came down here recently. Um, he, he recorded... Um, the music, and it, this is a funny story, too. Do you know when The Butt was out and the movie was out? EU did not have a record deal. What they had was they recorded the song on the soundtrack of the movie. Now, when the record was, like, about number one, then the record companies started making a bid on EU. They, they ended up finally selling with Virgin, but they didn't even have a record, record out. You know, I mean, they didn't even have a record deal. And the record was blowing up because people really don't understand Go-Go, you know. And it's real funny because I work with this group. They call them Yeah, with the man Teddy Riley. People don't know that Teddy Riley lived in D.C. He yeah. used Go-Go in his music. If you look at the sample with Teddy's Jam, he, sa- he sampled Trouble Funk, you know. Uh, and it's real funny, you guys, because a lot of D.C., should have been the next thing behind uh, L.A. and New York for its entertainment, not just go-go music in general. But the problem is people don't partner together, and that's the problem. You is, know, um, what, what about this, Bo? Is go-go, mm-hmm. is go-go music considered anti-gentrification? Nah, <laughs> nah, nah, nah. They ain't got nothing to do. Guys got to work together, man. They can't do it by themselves. You know, the people come in... Take the sec- secret wet recipe, as I say, and put it in their meal. I can, I can, you can point out go-go 
in a lot of different forms of music, but they don't call yeah. it go-go. You know what I'm saying? The sound is there, the percussions, um, everything. You know, it's a funny story because, and I got a lot of stories. I talked to Chris Blackwell. Chris Blackwell was the owner of Island Records. Island Records did a movie called Good to Go. They call, they changed the name now to Short Fuse. And I asked him, Chris Blackwell was the guy that made reggae hot when he did the reggae splash. And Bob Marley and all of them became famous off that that, that movie that they did. Um, he was trying to do the same thing with Go-Go. But what happened was the movie was not recorded uh, very well. And when I asked him, why do you think Go-Go didn't go as big as it did? He told me that he couldn't capture that live sound and put it on a, a studio record. They didn't have the right records. Now, this is what he told me personally. And this is the, this was the biggest thing, that Short Fuse movie after the Go-Go Live. I mean, you know, it was it was technically right. Go-Go Live was right after the, the Short uh, Good to Go movie. See, it man, didn't take off. That's what I was mm-hmm. saying, man. It's, the, it's unbeatable and undescribable, the live effect of Go-Go music. When people say... Um, <clears throat> Wind me up, Chuck. Wind me up, Chuck. And that it's whole a participation. It's, it's an a, exercise. It's the participation. It's a, yes. And he's yeah, calling yeah, out the parts of the town and everything. Go ahead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But but like I said, the EU record, Marcus Miller did the record. At least he produced the record. Now, I, this is just my opinion. I don't think Marcus Miller, he got the idea for something else that I saw from a different direction. But he was the one that was able to put everything together. From a musician's stand, he made it sound like it was national, because he knew you know working with Luther Vandross. But some of these artists, in my opinion, they're doing go go. They need to get producers. They can get a couple producers to help them tweak it and make it sound a little bit national. You know, hold that thought right there, Bo. We got to take another quick break and check the traffic Mm -hmm. and weather. I'm glad you mentioned the movie. Somebody, uh, Ed, sent us this movie, Jump to the Beat, Good to Go, about go go music. I'm so that took care of that for me. Five away from the top of our family. We got to, as mentioned, check the traffic and weather and the news in Baltimore for our listeners. We'll be back in four minutes, though, with Bo right here talking about music, go go music, and the entertainment industry right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB, also on the DMV. We're rolling on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. W-O-L, where information is power. Good morning once again, family. Tune us at the top of the hour with uh, DC Entertainment uh, Executive Bo Sampson. He's the book, What Does Bo Do? And momentarily, we're going to speak with uh, Monisha Henley. She's the Vice President for Government Relations for Every Town for Gun Safety. We're going to talk about gun violence. But let's wrap up with Bo. Bo, at Go-Go, did, did, did you have different variations of Go-Go? Like did Southeast was different from Northeast or Northwest? Was, was it all the same? I think, to me, I mean, they, they all had their own style, you know, as far as the way they dressed, the way they sound. I mean, you had the Junkyard, you had the um, Mass Extension, who's underrated, and Petworth, Reality Band, the Bootsy Brothers. I mean, that was the Northwest Side. Uh, then you had the Southeast with Rassons, Trouble Funk, um, you know. So I, I think more of the dress, they did all had variations mm. of sound, different sounds. Um, you know, but well, my last question for you, though, do you see 
this the music that's being played today by young people mm-hmm. do you think it does it have the shelf life the music that we grew up with well i think we gotta come out with more originality you know some of these bands they're not putting songs together you know like the black alleys they're they're keeping the sound alive uh then you got dc vibe band that's real hot and um some of the other bands that are out there there's some real hot bands out there that um I, I think they really could, you know, have an opportunity to, to give us some original music instead of the cover tune. Hey, hey, Kevin, you, know? you have a question for Bo? Uh, yes, I do. I've got one one last question, uh, Bo. Um, I'm anticipating the book greatly, man. It's gonna it's gonna cover. I appreciate you guys, man. And is is it gonna cover everything in entertainment? Everything from a live performance to um, getting your image. Yes, I mean, it's going to cover, you know, talk about the business part, uh, my experiences, you know, some quotes from people that I work with. Um, I'm hoping it to, it translated to the youth, too. Yeah, you know, yeah. some of this music we're listening to is technically the best of the garbage that's out. Some of it's some garbage. <laughs> hey, you know, <laughs> I, man, I'll just say it, man, you know, <laughs> you, know I, you know, it's just like the philosophy. We have to... We have to be role models, and I just hope that some of the things everybody would get out of the book would be something for everybody. I mean, if you say love, you R&B. If you say sex, you hip-hop. You know what I'm saying? Sure, it's like, you. man, you don't you don't have to talk about all that stuff because these guys are living out what they're talking about, you know, talking sure. about the B's and the H's. Man, that, that ain't how we were brought up. No, man, man. We don't, you don't need to just say anything just to get on. So I'm hoping that I could... Hope the book could translate into some things. I got to be able to relate. That's why I stay at the street level to kind of see what's ha- what's coming up before I get to Main Street. Hey, Bill, you know? remember the Bible of, ent- of entertainment was the the business of music. Remember that book? Everybody had to have. Yeah, but but you got to live it. You can't just read it. You know, for the difference with my book is I done been through it. I done snuck in the shows. I done did all kinds of stuff to make myself <laughs> relevant. I had glow-in-the-dark business cards. You know, but I, whatever I had to do to make myself a little relevant, you know, to sure. the business. You know, a lot of people sign these 360 deals. That's not always the best deal because the 360 deal, you might have signed your, your life away. If we don't sell enough of these records, uh, we're able to take your lawnmower. Or, or you know, you know, it, you, you're tying yourself to stuff, you're signing stuff just to get out. But some people didn't sign their life away because now you get some of the not only just the shows, but the merchandise. You know, the t-shirts yeah. and, and and long term. And I also uh-huh. I would like to make another point: when you try for those shows, The Voice, American Idol, uh, all these shows, American Got Talent. They make you sign a contract to get on the show, and that contract is long-term. You know what I'm saying? So you got to be careful just to get on, just to say you're doing it. And that's the reason why people are getting taken advantage of, because they didn't take the time to get somebody and find somebody that knew what the contract said. Find you an entertainment lawyer. Find you somebody that's done it before. But always remember... There's a slicky wiki out there all the time. Somebody's always trying to get over on you. You know what I'm saying? So you got to do you got to do a track record on the person before you find out if they really know what they're talking about. Because they, if they talking loud, don't mean they know. 
it might be, you know, kind of distract you from what they're trying to do. Well, thank, right. thank well, you. But you know, we'll have you come back as soon as the book is out because we can okay, talk yeah, music for a while. That. Let's do that. Man, so really your book will be out that. early next year? Yeah, and I'm going to tie some, you know, close to the black history and the black music month. I, I want to try to do stuff to try to help people, you know, because, uh, Pete, you guys helped me. Y'all helping me by getting on the radio. And shout out to, you know, Miss Hughes, Alfred, and Ron Thompson. I mean, they always look out for me, and, I, you know, it always comes back to me if you try to help somebody. That it does. So, Bo, we're going to let you go. But as soon as the book is out, let us let us know. Let's let's do this again because we have to just scratch the surface of what's really behind the scenes in the entertainment industry. Yeah, and check out, you know, the Afro and the Washington Forum. I had, a, um, you know, a couple articles, nice articles, you know, and I appreciate them, too, for supporting me. All right. Thanks, Bo. Okay. See y'all. Bye-bye. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. That's Bo Sampson. The title of the book, again, is What Does Bo Do? <laughs> and from the excerpts we've seen, it's, it's going to be a great book, folks, about music and entertainment in Washington, D.C. Eight after the top there. I'll turn our attention now to Miss uh, Monisha Henley. Good morning, Miss Henley. Good morning. Good to have you. Miss Henley is the Vice President for Government Relations for Every Town for Gun Safety. Uh, can you tell us what Every Town for Gun Safety is? Every Town for Gun Safety is the largest gun violence prevention organization in the country. Um, We were founded about 10 years ago when then Mayor Bloomberg was mayor of New York City, and he's a data guy. And one of the things he discovered was that 90% of the firearms that are being found in violent crimes were coming from other states. So he's like, how do I actually address this issue? And he decided that the best way to do that was to build this coalition of mayors. So he partnered with the then mayor of Boston and other mayors from across the country to really dig into the trafficking of firearms that are ending up in New York City and other cities to really figure out the solution to gun violence. And then the Sandy Hook massacre happened, and a woman named known as Shannon Watts was thinking about how do moms take this issue over? How do they really get out there and address gun violence? And she founded Moms Demand Action. And Mayors Against Legal Guns and Moms Demand Action came together to formulate what is now known as Every Town for Gun Safety. We are made up of 10 million moms, students, survivors, um, faith leaders, mayors, you name it, and they're a part of our coalition to really figure out how to address this issue on gun violence. All right, because gun violence, it seems like it's uh, disproportionately in our our areas, our communities, the black and brown areas. Is this true or is this uh, fiction? Oh, this is 100% true. Um, we know that there is not a single public health crisis impacting our country that is far worse than gun violence for black and brown communities. Um, and we know this because gun violence is a racial justice issue. And thanks to years of disinvestments and segregation, mostly in our cities, um, black communities continue to experience significantly higher rates of gun violence and specifically homicide, 12 times higher than their white counterparts. Um, This is an issue that I think sometimes the media inflates to being just about the black community. But I think this is more important to acknowledge that this is about deep systems that have suppressed us for years and years and years that have led us to being, unfortunately, at the heart of this epidemic. 
So why is it that, though, 11 at the top, they have a family? Why is it that in our community, especially in the black community, you, know, you pick up the, the, the Monday uh, Sun-Times in Chicago, and she, they, they have the weekend killings in Chicago, how many people got shot, how many fatalities. Same thing in Baltimore. Uh, a lot of shootings in Memphis. Our listeners in Memphis tell me that it's, it's really off the chain down there, but they, they don't get the notoriety. But why does it seem yeah. that it's our communities that, that this is happening to? Yeah. Well, again, it's what I mentioned before about these systems of racism, this disinvestment in things like housing and healthcare and education. It's years and years and years, decades of proper investments not getting into our communities. And also a piece that you, I want to acknowledge is you are only as strong as your neighboring state. So as I mentioned in our founding, um, one of the things that we that was discovered is that these firearms were ending up in our communities coming from other places. So Chicago firearms are not just coming from Chicago. They're coming from neighboring states like Indiana that has very weak gun laws. So if you're not properly investing in the community, if you're also not having strong gun laws, then what's going to happen? Black and brown bodies are going to be put at risk. Is this deliberate? Ooh, is this deliberate? Um, I think that the systems have been put in place to make it easier for our communities to be receiving the plight. And I think the piece that needs to happen now is for there to be acknowledgement of the root causes and for us to be able to say that we're going to stand up against this, which I think is slowly what we're starting to see over the past few years. Yeah, and the reason why I asked that, because there was some, uh, uh, there was in, in Miami, in the inner city of Miami, in Chicago, in L.A., they talked about trainloads of, of, of weapons and ammunition that were left on the train railroad tracks in our communities. And, and some people thought this was done deliberately to, you know, to, to cause the mayhem that we're going through right now. How do you see it? So I think that when you feel like you have bad outcomes and you have no solutions, you make bad choices. And I oftentimes, I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware. It is unfortunately a city that has a high gun violence um, rate. And part of the reason is, again, what I keep saying about this disinvestment, right? If you're feeling like it is easier for you to make a bad choice than it is for you to do other things, then that's because the systems have failed you. And I think that is oftentimes what is happening in our communities. All right, hold that thought right there, um, uh, uh, Ms. Hanley. we got to take a short break here and check the traffic and weather in our different cities. When we come back, though, let's talk about some solutions. You, you've, uh, since they are leaving these weapons and ammunitions in our communities, we don't have to use them. So maybe help us out here and come up with, give us some solutions. What should we do? Folks, you want to join this conversation with Maisha Hanley, reach out to us. She's from Everytown for Gun Safety. They're talking about the, the proliferation of guns in our communities, and we know it's a problem. We've got to find a solution because the other folks are not looking to find a solution it impacts us. So we're the ones who have got to come up with a solution. Reach out to us at 800-450-7876. We'll take your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WLB. Also in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. Welcome back to the Carl Nelson Show. Our guest is Sister Moesha Henry. Moesha, would you continue to tell us more about your program? Sure. Um, so when we left off, you were talking about what are some of the solutions here, right? Like, we don't want to just live in these violent outcomes. We want to figure out a way to address them. And something that I think is really important to acknowledge is that 
There is no one thing that is going to end gun violence in this country. And our goal is to come up with multiple things while acknowledging that, as I said at the beginning of this, you have to address the systems of racism. You have to make sure that there are jobs, there's housing, there's healthcare, there's education, along with some of the things that we are doing here at Every Town. So we really take a two-pronged approach to passing common sense uh, gun safety laws at all levels of government, from local, state, to federal, to also preventing violence in our communities. So I want to talk a little bit about community violence intervention programs. Um, We know that within our cities, violence is often in concentrated areas. Um, And one of the things that has been really amazing is to see community members in those areas really say that they're going to take on this issue. And they've created community-based organizations that are in the neighborhoods. Oftentimes, um, they are funded by local governments, uh, grants. Um, They're working in partnership with the mayor's office or sometimes even the governor's office, depending on what state you're in. And they're really built up of community members who are trusted by their neighbors, and their job is to identify harm and risk and to disrupt violence. Um, As I mentioned, these are community-led groups, and they are really the ones who are taking this from the ground up to make sure that we see an end of gun violence in our neighborhoods. And then the other side of the approach, as I mentioned, is passing good gun laws, uh, because we know that gun laws save lives. We know that when you have a state, for example, like a Maryland, that you will see a reduction in gun violence. But as I also said at the beginning of this call, you're only as strong as your neighboring state. So is it a door-to-door campaign pretty much to rally the community to get involved? And how do you, oh, yeah. how do you get the lawmakers to, um, you know, actually be behind you on that? So one of the things that we pride ourselves on is like exactly what you're talking about, this grassroots level approach of making sure we're working with community partners, the, one, the communities that are most impacted, but we're also bringing everybody in. This is a country of survivors. Gun violence, unfortunately, impacts more of us than less of us. Um, right now, there are 59% of adults in America, including 71% of black Americans, myself included, are considered survivors of gun violence. That is a majority of this country, meaning that it is on us as constituents, as voters, to call on our elected officials and tell them that they must pass good gun laws, that they must take this issue seriously, and they have to put good policy in place. Let me jump in here, um, uh, Ms. Henry. I've got a tweet question for you from Jeff. Jeff says, what is the percentage? We'll get that tweet question. We're having a little technical <laughs> difficulty going on here today with um, Carl. So I, I have a quest, another question for you, though, uh, Moesha, and, and that is that as you as you do this, is, does it become frustrating or what keeps you going? What's your passion as far as yeah. making sure this works? Um, I mean, this is such a personal issue for me. I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware, as I mentioned, and unfortunately, I knew what it felt like to go to a Fourth of July party and in my parents' backyard and be rushed inside because that familiar popping, which were not fireworks, was happening in the neighborhood. I knew what it was like to not be able to go to my local corner store because my parents were worried that I would get to be there at the wrong time. And then I went away to college, and my sophomore year was heading to a party, and 
again, heard that familiar, all too familiar sound and found out that there was an argument over a football game. Somebody brought a gun to the party. And as a result, I lost my friend that night and five of my other classmates were shot. Sorry for your This is just an issue that has plagued my life and so many of our lives for far too long. So I want to less people to have to go through this. I don't want any more survivors to be in this elite club. And it drives me to wake up every day and work on this issue and work with lawmakers to pass good policy solution, common sense law, gun laws, and to eradicate this issue. Um, so, yeah, it can be really frustrating sometimes because it doesn't feel like it should be this hard for us to deal with this issue in this country. Um, but, but I'm motivated personally, and I will keep fighting until we see better outcomes. Okay. Just on us, 26 after the top of the hour with Moesha Henney. And let's talk about solutions, though. Is there anything that we can do listening to you right now? Well, some very simple solutions would be to make sure that you are engaging with your elected officials. Um, that you are telling them this is an issue that matters to you, that you want to see a stop to gun violence in this country. Um, there are very simple approaches to this, from things like holding the gun industry accountable to passing assault weapons bans to secure storage, right, to making sure there's laws in place that properly make sure that if you are, choose to be a gun owner, you are properly securing your firearm. We know that gun violence is the leading cause of death for children and teens. And a very easy way to make sure children and teens do not have access to a firearm is to properly secure it. So just calling on your lawmakers to say, like, you need to act and do something. And also, we have a lot of resources at everytown.org that you can check out if you want to learn more about what the policies are in your state um, and ways that you can get involved. And then the last piece is, if you're a member of a community that has a violence intervention program, I highly recommend you getting to know those folks and partnering with them and making sure that they receive the funding that they need to keep doing the incredible work that they're doing. All right, and I've got to ask you about the NRA. Would you party with them as well? Would you join with them, or are they just too powerful, or it's just off limits to dealing with them? So, I mean, I'm willing to sit down at the table with whoever is willing to have a conversation for how we address this issue. Um, we have not seen that their agenda quite matches ours. They're taking more of a guns everywhere approach. We're actually looking to um, make, like I said, have stricter gun laws make sure that we can have safer communities but if they want to talk about how do we reduce violence and how do we make sure we keep our community safe safe i'm happy to have that conversation yeah because you know one of the things i'm friend talking with uh, some black gun uh, stores and black gun owners uh, many of the people pushing guns and practicing how to use firearms and use them reasonably um, women black women uh, and this is this this is not the group that you're talking about correct no, this is not the group I'm talking about. Um, and also, like, I just want to acknowledge, like, it is what you just said is, like, the key to this issue, right? Responsible gun ownership. People who have gone through fire safety training, who are properly securing their firearms, who are actually being very responsible in how they're partaking in owning a firearm. And that is not where we're, that is not the debate here. The debate is on how do we stop these violent outcomes from happening. 
Right, and you mentioned policy. You know, uh, policy changes. You know, through the political uh, way to get these changes. But what else can we do to prevent gun violence in our communities? Because obviously, that's not working. The, the politicians are not hearing. They they see. You know, it's like uh, ball game scores every every other day, especially on the weekends. Uh, how many people were wounded? How many people? How many fatalities? And all because of the gun. And and we wonder if they if they have the power to do something if because they haven't done it. But what can the average citizen listening to you right now this morning, what can we do? Is there anything that we can do? So I think having the conversation is really important. Um, so I think the conversation we're having right now is so important, is key to that, is understanding what policies are available, it's practicing safe gun ownership, it is connecting with your community partners, it is also, again, going back to those root causes of, like, making sure that we have education, that we have access to health care, that we have affordable housing, that we're doing all these things. I said at the beginning of our conversation, there's no one solution. And that is a big part of it, is just acknowledging that we all have to say that there's an end that we want to see and that we're going to go for all the things. So, um, I mean, again, I was really emphasized for people to get to know who is in their community, to get to know their policymakers, to hold their policymakers accountable, to make sure that lawmakers know that this is an issue that's top of mind and that we don't want to see gun violence here anymore. And yeah, and at 29 away from the top, how, how do you convince the, the folks who are pro-gun lobbyists that, that this is not a, a challenge to their Second Amendment? It's not. I mean, nothing we're talking about is about a challenge to the Second Amendment. Um, everything we're talking about is responsible gun ownership, about properly securing your firearm, and most importantly, not seeing violent outcomes. Um, when I have this conversation all across the country, I'm focused on making sure violence doesn't happen. This is not about you being a gun owner. It's about making sure your gun does not create harm for yourself or others. That is it. And I think we should all be able to agree that we don't want to see more violence. Yeah, I'll go back to Jeff's question about the, the, the violence in the white communities, because there is gun violence in the white communities, but it seems like our, our faces hit the poster boy or girl, if you will, for, for the violence, for gun violence. How do we change that narrative? Well, unfortunately, um, I think that we started to see that. Uh, most recently, there was just a shooting in Lewiston, Maine. Uh, we know that assault weapons are the firearm of choice for white supremacists. We've seen that consistently in places like uh, Buffalo and Jacksonville. Um, you are starting, you, we know that homicide, or sorry, excuse me, suicide is the leading uh, gun violence that happens in this country and that is often impacting white men over the age of 60. Um, domestic violence is a huge part of this issue, so I think it's about having this conversation. It's explaining the narrative that this is not, gun violence is not just about black communities or black and brown communities, but that this is everybody's issue. Um, I think we just have to make sure that we push back on those narratives and keep saying it. That is not one community that's impacted, it's all of ours. And how young can we have this conversation with, with our children? At what age do you think we should have? Unfortunately, I think we have to have that conversation, you know, starting at school age. Um, they are, unfortunately, children are going through active shooter drills. They know what that means to, you know, shelter in place and be protected. And they need to understand what does it mean if you have a firearm in your home for it to be properly stored? How do you practice responsible gun ownership? What does it mean to be able to 
be safe in your lives. I think it is never too early for us to have these conversations. And if we're talking about a culture shift and we're talking about ending violence, then we need to make sure that our children are aware of that. All right. I'll tell you what, we've got to take a short break here and check the news, traffic, and weather in our different cities. Dr. Myers from Black Women for Positive Change has a question for you. We'll talk to Dr. Myers when we get back. And folks, you want to join this conversation with Manisha Henley, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. Good morning again, family. 20 minutes away from the top of the hour with our guest, uh, Moesha Henley from Everytown for Gun Safety, discussing the, the why gun violence disproportionately affects the black and brown communities. And before we go back to it, let me just remind you, coming up later this morning, we're going to continue the discussion with the former FBI agent, Dr. Tyrone Powers, and he wants to know, well, he's going to connect the dots between the crime and educational problems all across the country. And later this week, you're going to hear from Temple University scholar, Dr. Nod Dove, also Maryland State Senator Jill Carter, will be here, along with veteran civil rights activist, Brother Willie Ricks, Willie Macasa Ricks, if you will, and Morgan State Professor Dr. Ray Wimbush, all going to be here this week. So if you're in Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in tight on 1010 WLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. As I mentioned, Miss um, um, uh, Henley, Dr. Stephanie Myers from Black Women for Positive Change has joined us. She has a question for us. Dr. Myers is on line one. Good morning, Dr. Myers. Good morning, Carl, and thank you for this excellent discussion with uh, with Ms. Henley. Um, our organization is very concerned about prevention, and you mentioned the root causes of violence, and I really appreciated your overview of those issues, poverty and housing and health, but how do we prevent it? Are there ways that we can introduce new approaches into the schools or into the communities to help people learn that America has a culture of violence? And we need to change that thinking, change the way people think about violence and guns. What can we do about that? Um, I love this question. I think it is so important because that's exactly what we have to do, is we have to change the culture. Um, And I think that there needs to be a deeper understanding of how we got here. Um, The question was asked about the Second Amendment earlier. And I think oftentimes when we're having this conversation, people think you have to be either pro or against the Second Amendment. It's actually not about that. It's about making sure that guns are not ending up in the hands where they don't belong, where somebody could cause harm to themselves or others. It's making sure that people understand the system specifically, that it's oppressed and held back black communities and really acknowledging our history here, that there has been decades and decades and decades of fight that have led us to these violent outcomes. And now we need to have to start to slowly unravel the thread. And that means being honest. That means making sure that we're having a proper investment in education, that we're investing in communities, um, we're investing in programs like violence intervention programs, we're having um, common sense gun laws in our states, and most importantly, that we're making sure that we have all those things that you said the root causes, like access to healthcare, education, um, and that we're eliminating poverty. So I think continuing to talk about it, continuing to hold our elected officials possible, I think to partnering. Um, so like working with organizations like Everytown that are partnering with other organizations in different states to really make sure that we're addressing this issue. 
absolutely. We have appreciated partnering with Every Town for Gun Safety the last few years. And are you familiar with the Peace Circle concept? Have you had a chance to watch that? Because we just finished our month of nonviolence, and we had children in peace circles everywhere from South Korea to the Ivory Coast in Africa and in America. Do you think that that's an approach that there should be more emphasis on, peace circles? Um, I would actually love to learn a little bit more about this. I am definitely open to anything that is emphasizing peace and that is pulling our communities together. So maybe you and I could connect after this and I could learn a little bit more. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, thank you, Carl. And thank you so much, Monisha, for your leadership. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Dr. Myers. 16 away from the top. Yeah, Brother G's up next. He's on line three. He's calling from the district. Good morning, Brother G. Yes, Carl, your guest made an excellent point that little or no people pay attention to. She said that 60% of deaths by firearms in this country are by homicides. I mean, by suicides. Only 40% are by homicides. So when you look at the media, they they focus on blacks, and they say black-on-black violence. But the number one cause of death is suicide. And 60, 60% of those, 60 to 80%, 70% of those suicides are whites, um, committing to um, putting a firearm in their mouth or in their head and committed and pulling the trigger on themselves. So why isn't this um, published in mainstream media? Why isn't this focused on most of the firearms deaths are committed by fire, by suicides. Why isn't the media focused on this rather than suicide? I mean, homicides. All right. Thanks, brother G. Miss Hanley. So I think that part of it is like, Suicide is still really stigmatized. I don't think that we oftentimes are talking about it in the same way that we're talking about homicide. I also think that it is exactly what was just said. This is impacting a community that doesn't maybe want to acknowledge that. Like when you have a, right now, the largest population that's most likely impacted by suicide is white men over the age of 60. And so you have to have people acknowledging that and talking about what does it mean to address that issue. And that is why I brought it up here today. I hope that there is more opportunity to talk about this in other places, but that gun violence isn't one thing. And I think we really need to push the media to tell the whole story on it. And we need to push the lawmakers to acknowledge that as well. All right. Thanks, Brother G. Uh, 14 away from the top. I got a tweet question or a tweet comment for you, uh, Ms. Handley. Tweeter says, black and Latinos are subject to illegal guns in our communities and white males unfettered access to automatic weapons. And this gives rise to mass shootings. Uh, your thoughts on that? I mean, I, I'm not sure there's any thoughts. I think those are true statements. Um, as I mentioned before, white supremacist weapon of choice is an assault weapon. Um, you are seeing, you are, as also mentioned before, that we are only as strong as our neighboring states. And oftentimes the guns that end up in our communities and violent crimes in cities are coming from other places. So you have to be able to address both of these issues at the same time. Well, let me put you on the spot. <laughs> 13 away from the top there. <laughs> Do you think if the, the shootings that, are, that are happen, were happening in the white community that happens in our community that we'd have gun reform we would have been done a long time ago if white folks are killing each other indiscriminately like we see sometimes in our communities that action would have taken place so i will say that if you look at other public health epidemics for example the opioid crisis 
um, it really got a lot of attention when it was no longer just in certain neighborhoods, when it was impacting other communities. And I think that this is a similar issue. Um, We saw large federal action last year happen when there was a series of mass shootings. We saw that really capture the nation's attention when it was involving children. Um, And I think that this has to feel like this is everybody's issue. And unfortunately, right now, sometimes it is too easy to say this is just a black issue or this is a black and brown issue, which is why we work so hard at every time to really raise that narrative of that this is impacting all of us. Um, yeah. But yeah. I wanna, I think, go ahead. I think solutions come when more people feel like they are, it's about them. Right. And I was going to say, I know you've got to run before we let you go, though. I've got to ask you about uh, what is Everytown pushing for in the new year? What, are, what is your wish list? So we have uh, several things that we're hoping to see accomplished. A big part of that is holding the gun industry accountable for their role in gun violence in this country. I've talked a lot about how these firearms are ending up in our communities. And a big part of that is that this is an industry that is untapped it is unaccountable and right now we are going to make sure that people understand that they need to be responsible for gun violence in this country we're going to also continue to work on things like assault weapons bans again we talked about how that is the weapon of choice for white supremacists so that means that we need to um, eliminate them and we have lots of interesting policy solutions on that including a brand new bill that was just introduced in the senate last week known as go Go State that was introduced by Senator Heinrich from New Mexico, along with Senator King from Maine, the Senator Bennett from Colorado, and Senator Kelly from Arizona. So we'll be looking for more movement on that. I've talked a lot about responsible gun ownership and the importance of secure storage. So that is big on our list. And the most important piece is we've actually had a lot of success on policy in the country. Uh, this year alone in our states, we've passed almost 138 different policies, and they are only as good as if they're implemented. So making sure that we are making checking to make sure these laws work, that they are being funded, that they're being implemented properly so that they can actually do the job that they were set up to. And then the last piece is the continuous investment in our communities, making sure violence intervention programs are being fully funded, uh, making sure that we are creating new opportunities for other programs to exist in communities that need them. Um, yeah, and that's my wish list. Okay. Uh, Before we let you go, how can folks reach you if they want to get involved? Um, So they can uh, text READY to 64433. If they would like to get involved, they'll receive a response from us, and that'll plug them into our network. And I just want to thank you so much for having me today, having this conversation. I think it's so important, especially in our community, that we're really acknowledging this issue and we're figuring out how to address it. Yeah. Do you have a website, by the way, real quick? Uh, Everytown.org. Everytown.org. Well, thank you. And thank you for what you do, because, you know, a lot of times we see problems in our community and, you know, we we just look the other way and hoping that somebody else is going to solve them, not knowing that we're going to have to solve our own our own problems. So I thank you for stepping up to the plate with your group. Thank you. 
All right, let me let me bring Kevin in here nine away from the top of the hour. Uh, Kevin, you, you know what it's like New Year's Eve when we're talking about gun violence, you know. And this is when uh, folks get a chance to uh, show off, if you will, in just about every urban center. You know, and I know there's going to be a lot of talk about this and come New Year's Eve about firing firing guns into the air because it's celebrating New Year's Eve. But uh, I want to get you, I want to get your thoughts, though, Kevin. All right. Because uh, you know, we've been around a while, so we know it's it's part of the New Year's Eve celebration just to uh, pop off a few rounds for some folks. That's Your right, thoughts Sonny. On that? <laughs> well, yeah, man. Um, We're laughing, but it's but it's true, and it's, it's a serious true. problem. It's true. I remember, of course, you know, in, in my youth, there'd be somebody firing off uh, a shotgun or something here or there. Um, and I remember even now, you can hear it. You know, I, I live in Southeast. You can hear it popping off. But the real question is, where does the bullet fall, you see? Um, so, yeah, with gun safety in mind, the Sister Monisha, um, you know, the what is the government affairs at every town for gun safety? Right. What do you do to admonish people to not do that? You know, I know that she, she may be disconnected right now, but... Uh, it, you know, so you think about that, and, and yet you can't go out and say, hey, don't do that. And there, there used to be public service announcements for things like that. I think someone needs to reinstitute that, the public service announcement. About. Right, and there's going to be, and you're going to see the police bond the mayor step out and, and admonish people not to fire their weapons. But it, 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 they just say that instead of saying, okay, here's what you can do if you want to celebrate the new year. You want to bring in the new year, and 2024 is going to be a year, family. Those of you who listen to this program long enough know it's going to it's election year, it's a, a Olympics year. It's going to be, a, you know, just keep watching for this year. It's going to be a year. So people want to celebrate it coming in, though. I don't know if we once we get it, we'll, if we'll be sort of celebrating but that's that's for another story but uh, kevin i was just thinking that they need to offer uh, the folks another way to celebrate do you think the fireworks would be better to leave the guns alone do you think that would the folks who like to pull that trigger do you think they get the same excitement as, as, as setting off some fireworks well in my humble opinion oftentimes gun owners sometimes that's their only chance to fire their weapon and uh, i'm thinking maybe if you've got to do it maybe aim to the ground don't don't try to shoot in the air because it's not it's not an actual pyrotechnic it's not a, a <laughs> firework you know people don't see the bullet um explode in the air so maybe if you shoot toward the ground but that's the way i've known some people who are gun owners to use it that's the only time they get to hear how loud their gun is you know and uh, yeah i'll go to the gun range most of the folks who who have yes. legal gun owners they don't they're not pomping off on new year's eve it's the folks who who haven't got their pistols and haven't used them for a while they want to see if they still work who are usually involved in that kind of celebration it, yeah yeah it's it's hard to tell but uh, yeah be safe out there is the is, that's the real uh question just be safe and put put the guns away all right. That's a good advice from Kevin Langford, family. We've got to take a quick break here. It's six minutes away from the top. Yeah, we're going to come back and talk about some of this stuff with former FBI agent Dr. Tyrone Powers. You can join in in this uh, discussion as well. Reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls after the news, traffic, and weather in our different cities right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL or information is power.
Good morning once again, family. Two minutes after the top of the hour, our next guest is a, a former FBI agent, Dr. Tyrone Powers. Dr. Powers, welcome back to the program. Good morning. Thank you for having me back on call. Glad to be with you. You know, we've been talking about crime and gun violence uh, prior to you, uh, speaking with you this morning, but... One of the issues, though, that you want to explain to us is that there's this sort of a connection between the educational problems in this country and also the crime. Can you connect those dots for us? Yeah, well, obviously, I always have said, and, and certainly based on my career and, and both the Maryland State Police and the FBI and the work I do now, is that the best counter crime or crime reduction agency in, in this country and probably around the world is, is education. I mean, you know, the student of um, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad Malcolm X said, um, you know, education um, is the foundation. It's, the, it's, the, it's, the, it's where all positive change will take place because today, tomorrow belongs to those who prepare for it today. And um, Nelson Mandela himself said that education is the most uh, powerful weapon um, that we can use um, to change the world, and and that's 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 absolutely unequivocally true. If you recall, um, during the days of um, chattel slavery here in the United States, one of the major prohibitions was teaching black people to read and write. In fact, not only could you be um, captured and punished, or had your eyes burned out, or your hands cut off, or learning to read and write, but even they even charged white people. They were so serious about keeping black people from being educated because, as Frederick Douglass said, it's hard to make a slave out of an educated person. Um, they were so serious about keeping education um, because of its empowerment and its ability to change lives, change situations economically um, and otherwise that they even punished and prosecuted white people for teaching black people um, to read. And usually white people were seldom prosecuted for anything that had anything to do with black people. But the one thing that they were prosecuted for, not lynchings, not murders, not whippings, not rapes, but they were prosecuted as one of the most serious charges was educating black people or teaching them to read and write. And they would be actually um, in charge with that. So education in the education system is the most powerful thing. And, you know, the, you, the, the thing is, Carl, is that for years we, we protested and we pushed and we advocated and um, used all kind of methods so that we could take control of the education of our children and our children's children, because that is the case all around the world. People seem to understand that. And in many cases now, we do have control of that. In a city like Baltimore, we have a black mayor, black CEO of the school system. We have black city council members and black school board commissioners. But the education system is still seem to be relegated to um, or we don't seem to see the importance and the significance of making it a place of excellence. No, no excuses about all the other things that we're dealing with. We've got to overcome them so that we can change the education system. I was listening to partly um, of your, your previous guests, and I've said this to you before, and I, I, I believe this, and I think the research will indicate this. It's not necessarily poverty that creates violence. It's hopelessness, because there's been a lot of poor people. Some of us in your listening audience were poor at some time. Our families were poor, and our parents and our 
and other interceptors in the community gave us a direction to get out of poverty without harming other people. They didn't want to send us to poverty from poverty to prison. They wanted to send us poverty to stability, to education, so that we could prepare future generations. So it's the hopelessness, and hopelessness can be a part and parcel of poverty, but it's hopelessness. When you believe that this is as best it gets, that's why you have the high suicide rate, the increase of 50% for suicide rate among blacks um, or black youth, ages five five to 24. You have five-year-olds leaving their mother womb, only at five years out of the womb, contemplating suicide. That's our sense of hopelessness. That's not just poverty, because you have to believe that things are bad and there's no way that they're going to get any better. And that's an indictment, too, I guess, of those in leadership position, because when young people are seeing black faces in high places and they still don't have confidence or have hope that despite my current situation, things will get better, that's an indictment on the leadership. So the education is the foundation of all positive change. And I'm talking about a complete and comprehensive education. I know it's the math, the science, the STEM programs, but also the education in terms of culture and of unity and of this history that I'm talking about where black people weren't allowed to read and why it's rebellious almost to read. It was rebellious so much so that they would physically harm you and harm those who would teach you, but it's rebellious even now because if I know that I have a population, for example, let's take Baltimore for an example. Um, the Baltimore, the, the state, the Maryland state school board or the school system said that we had a 40 to 50 percent dropout rate in the city of Baltimore. John Hopkins did a study a few years ago and said, no, 70 percent. They said, because in Maryland, you're only measuring dropouts from those who enter the ninth grade and fail to complete 12th grade. But there are people who never go to ninth grade and they're not even considered dropouts in the prison population. The average education level. Um, is an eighth grade education. So they're not even numbered in the dropouts. But when you have a population where you have 70% of the people entering kindergarten and not finish high school, that creates a culture of hopelessness in some people who don't have the other interceptors, the guidance, the parenting, the mentorship. And that, and that hopelessness leads to a culture of violence, which you don't mind killing yourself, so you damn sure don't mind killing other people. And that is the key in the foundation. And again, the sad part about it is that in many cases now, we control these institutions of education. We control the education system. We are the, the mayor in these cities. We are the city council. We are the aldermen in cities like uh, Chicago. And we are in the positions of power. We are the mayor in cities of Chicago, people like city of Chicago. And our focus and concentration have to be on changing and making sure that young people are appropriately educated so they have a chance at success, whether it's entrepreneurship or employment in the federal government or employment in government agencies or employment in the, the very agencies that police them, the police agencies. But that requires education. And the target have always been of people who wanted to keep other people from making progress, destroy their education. As you know, Pol Pot in Cambodia had the killing fields. He actually sent out an edict to say, kill every educated person. Now, uneducated people, keep them alive and we'll send them to the farms to do the hard labor. But his edict, 
um, they made a movie about it called The Killing Fields. His edict for his government was when he took power, find those who have advanced degrees, who are educated, because he said those people at some point will rebel because you cannot be fully educated. And I don't mean just graduating from high school. I mean fully educated and accept the conditions as they are and your solution when you're educated, it's not suicide, but your solution is developing strategies to change the situation. And we haven't done a very good job of that, even our leaders. All right, let me jump in here at 10 after the top and ask you this question, because many, most of the issues we see are in our, our cities, um, and the major cities are headed by black Democratic mayors and they have problems. It, being a, 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 a part of the Democratic Party, does it have anything to do with the disintegration, as, as some will say, in the inner cities? See, I, I believe that, again, we've always been taught, and I don't know how we messed this up, to vote our interests and not necessarily a part of, part, uh, party. As, again, the student of Elijah Muhammad in the Nation of Islam, Malcolm X, said, I'm not a Democrat or Republican or, and got sense enough to know it. He said, I'm not a jackass or an elephant and got sense enough to know it. In other words, you vote your interests. It's not necessarily the party, but what has happened is the leadership in these uh, who have taken um, control or in, or in leadership positions, I won't even necessarily call them leadership, have, have connected themselves to a party so that they could get money, so they could get elected um, from a very strategic standpoint, and then they have the party to follow the party line. We were never designed to follow the party line. I mean, Lincoln was a Republican, and he signed the Emancipation Proclamation, which we know wasn't designed to free all blacks. But the point of the matter is parties change, but our mission, our purpose, our goal of making sure that our people are free, or as Marcus Garvey said, emancipated from mental slavery, numbered ourselves, can free our mind. It's not associated or connected to a party. But the leadership in certain cities have connected themselves to a party, and then the agenda of the party agenda of the party supersede the agenda of the people. And if we could get strong black leadership in there, and I don't care whether you're a Democrat or Republican, whatever party you choose, once you get in that position, don't worry about reelection. Worry about changing the condition for the four years or six years or whatever the term is that you're there. Throw all that other stuff, caution to the wind and say, they may not ever vote me back, but they're going to know I'm here. Because from day one, I'm going to start doing things to change the condition of our people for education, um, dealing with the issues of poverty, as you talked about before, but mainly dealing with the issues of hopelessness. Young black people are going to see me and know that change is possible, and they're going to know that I'm working for change every single day and every single way, and I'm going to advocate for it. Some battles I may lose, but you're simply going to know that I'm battling for black people. Well, again, we've hitched our, we've hitched our relationships to party, and then we follow the party line for the purpose of getting money. And Dr. King said, speaking of that, Dr. King's um, um, celebration of birthday and next is coming up in a month, but Dr. King even said, he said, true leaders, are not controlled by politics. Their moral compass is not controlled by politics. It's about what's right and what's wrong. And Malcolm X said, you know, that, you know, right, right, right is right and wrong is wrong. And it doesn't matter who says it or does it. But what we've done is strategically bought in to their system that I will do what the party want. And then hopefully that will trickle down and help the people rather than I will do what the people need. And if that's associated or if that's consistent with the party, then so be it. But if not, this is what I would do. Whatever strategic thing you have to do to get in the position of power, once you get in power, make your legacy. 
your life. After you're gone and dead, I'm talking about everlasting life, make your legacy in your life that you did something that was so needed, so powerful, and so urgent. In other words, not just waiting on to do things that people will know you forever. That That's where we've got to get. We can't follow the same script as people who've had power for others. As, as Booker T. Washington said, we're not up from the Revolutionary War. We're up from slavery. That's the name of his book, Up From Slavery in This Country. Not in Africa, not in the diaspora, but in this country, black people are up from slavery. So he said, your strategy, your thought process, your plan can't be associated with the people who are up from 1776, it has to be associated with the people who was involved in chattel slavery, who was raped, robbed, abused, miseducated, undereducated, de-developed, underdeveloped. Your strategy for changing that condition, which is why he did what he did at Tuskegee, has to be based on the philosophy of, in this country, we're up from slavery. So we cannot have the same plan as others. We cannot have the same unified party platform as others because others didn't start where we start, and we have to be bold and educated enough and brave enough and courageous enough to understand that and then create strategies based on our reality, not on this generalized reality of others, because they're not the same. And all right. of our uh, Hold that thought right there, uh, Dr. Powers. Hold that thought right there. We've got to take a quick break. When we come back, though, a tweeter sent a question for you. The tweeter says, how can we transform the hopelessness that you mentioned into opportunities for young people? Should it be through the schools, the churches, or something else? And I'll let you respond to that when we get back, but we've got to take a short break and check the traffic and in our different cities at 15 after the top of the hour. We're back in four minutes, though, with uh, Dr. Powers right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. And good morning once again, family. 22 minutes after the top there with our guest, uh, former FBI agent, Dr. Tyrone Powers. Dr. Powers has a book, by the way, it's titled Eyes to My Soul, The Rise or Decline of a Black FBI Agent. And this morning we're discussing some of the problems in our communities, making the, uh, the connection between the educational problems and some of the crime problems. Before we left with a traffic and weather update, uh, we had a tweeter call in for a question. And the question, uh, Dr. Dr. Powers, was how... Can we transform the hopelessness that you mentioned into opportunities for young people? Should it be through the schools, the churches, or something else? Good, excellent question. I think the first step in that, and I'm gonna I'm gonna get directly to it. The first step in that is recognizing how much hopelessness we have in our community, as you just mentioned. Call and the name of my book was Eyes to My Soul. If you look into the eyes of some of our young people, you can almost see that calling or asking of questions, where do I go? How do I change this? What does the future look like? Paint a picture for me. You know, and all things religious, um, I don't care what religion you are, whether you use the Bible, the Quran, the Torah, or any other religious book or philosophy, the, 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 the thing that uh, allows people to continue along that path is a vision or a hope that things will get better in the future. In other words, the Bible said, if you do this, you will end up in heaven with streets of gold. It is pointing to something that if you endure this pain, this difficulty, there is something better there. When you look into the eyes of many of our young people, they don't have a sense of what's in the future. Some of them are not in the church. They're definitely in the school, but the curriculum isn't designed to instill that in them. So they, they're looking at life very narrowly. Very, they're looking at life 
as what it is today. And if you look in the eyes to their soul, because the eyes, the eyes are the windows to the soul, you can almost see that hopelessness, despite what's coming out of their mouth, despite the bravado, despite the singing of bravado rap songs, which is why they are so popular, because the bravado rap songs with all the cursing and the negativity talks about, I am something, I am powerful, I can do this, even though the reality of the matter is it's not true, it's, it's selling a false dream and a myth, but they're looking for something, and we haven't provided that for them. So to, your, to the question, and all these agencies, the church, the schools, the community, the neighborhood organizations, um, the, 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 you know, in Baltimore, we have organizations like We Are Us who are trying to do that, who understand the psychology of our young people. They, nobody enter, leaves their mother womb wanting to be a drive-by shooter or a rapist. No one wants to leave their mother womb wanting to drop out of school to be ignorant, to be uneducated, to commit violence against others, to steal. That's not the nature of a baby born from any woman in this world. That happens after they leave the womb when they sense a sense when they get a sense of hopelessness, when there's no direction as to where they should go and how they should get there. As we indicated before, poverty isn't isn't lonely isn't solely the reason for that. Because again, some of us were broke and poor in the South and other places, and I've heard us say we didn't even know we were poor because somehow our parents provided and our family and the neighborhoods provided a sense of hopefulness, which said that we were laughing, we had Christmases, even though we didn't have a lot, but we didn't have a sense of hopelessness, even though we were certainly in abject poverty. There was some belief instilled in us by somebody in the neighborhood, in the schools, in the churches, that things can and things will get better if you follow this path. But that path, that that pathway, that direction had to be laid out, not just in criticism and critiques, but in step-by-step moves. This is what you have to do, young man or young woman, to make this particular move, and we're going to be with you all the way. You are the CEO of your life, and we're going to be your board of directors. Because you can't do this thing by yourself in a country that's steeped in racism, designed from the very from your very from the very time they brought you here to destroy you and to make you ignorant. You can't do this by yourself. You have to have a board of directors, and sitting around that board of directors have to be the churches. And the churches cannot just teach. And I know a lot of them don't do this anymore. You cannot just teach otherworldliness. The children are looking for answers for tonight. Tomorrow morning, what do I do to get better? Give me a sense of hope, not just when I get to heaven, but when I get home. Give me a sense of hope, not just when um, I'm, I'm 30, but tell me what you do to get to 14 and drive that home in all of these institutions. So the leadership, I'm not talking about just political leadership, Call. I'm talking about the leadership in the churches have to understand the psychology of young people. And I know that whatever your religious book is, that has to be the foundation of your message. But in all those religious books, the foundation of the message is sacrifice. And, you know, whether it's the Bible and, 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 and God sacrificing his only begotten son or whether it's Torah or the Quran, you got to give up something to get something. And our people in leadership positions or all of our people in congregations, whether they're teachers or aides or the facilities person or the people who drive the school buses, going to have to sacrifice something. They're going to have to sacrifice some of their time to devise, to devise and give our young people a sense of hope. 
I'm, you know, I'm teaching now as, as an adjunct at Bowie State University. When these students come into these classes, even in our places of higher education, in our HBCUs, their expectations have been so lowered that they're just trying to graduate. They're not trying to be educated. Nobody's telling them how to take their education and become a part of the solution. We're just trying to get them to graduation day so their parents can come and cheer for them and they can go out and have dinner in the evening and then try to figure out what they're going to do with the rest of their life. We have a captured audience, and I always take advantage of that. I'm, I, I still serve as the Director of Collaboration and Special Initiatives at Anne Arundel. I still have go-around training and, and, and doing presentations. But, but what they've all said to me, the young people, is can you provide a concrete path? Don't tell us we got to do better, you got to study. Tell us, Dr. Powers, how to do this day-to-day. Tell me what I do to do when I go home tonight and there's no food in the house. Tell me where to go to deal with that situation and paint this picture of what it will look like if I did all the things that you said I should do, paint a picture, because our children learn from observation, participation, and demonstration, and not a whole lot of conversation. So when you are telling them to get this education so it can take you there, Paint the picture of what there looks like, like the Bible does. The Bible says you're in heaven, there's streets of gold, there's no more death, there's no more suffering. You can not only hear that, you can actually see that. But what we do with our children, we say, go get good grades, but we don't paint the picture of where that will take them. They need a destination. They need to see it because they are visual learners. And if you give me a vision of where this thing that you're trying to provide for me can take me, I think I can hang out with that. I think I can stay closer than that than the alternative, which is violence and crime and spinning my head in a cell, which we put up pictures and show them this, sleeping with my head next to a toilet for the next 25 years of my life, that will be my total existence if I take this path. However, this path that you painted for me, this, this, this thing that you've got it with me from curriculum with day-to-day activity can take me to this vision or closer to this vision than the other alternatives, which is sleeping with my head next to a toilet. You know, the, the rapper Tupac Shakur said a lot of the violence with young people, he said, because 25 the life never crossed their mind. They don't know what it looked like. They know what, I, I could get locked up and go to jail, but they don't know what a jail cell with your head sleeping next to a toilet with someone with you and that being your total existence, never dating, never going to a movie, never going to the mall, never putting on the clothes you want to put on, never having, they, we got to paint that picture so vividly till that's not an option. That's what hopeless is. That's why Jesse Jackson used to always say, people used to say it was trite, keep hope alive. He never he, he talked about ending poverty. He talked about all the other elements. But his statement was once people lose hope, when there's no vision of how young people get to where they need to get, then they are gone. They will become zombies like the walking dead because there's right. no better. Well, I thought right the there, uh, Dr. Powers, got someone, folks want to talk to you at 29 minutes away from the top there. Tyrone is in Baltimore. He's on the line, too. Good morning, Tyrone. You're on with Dr. Powers. Uh, yes, good morning, uh, Dr. Tyrone Powers. Okay. Um, good morning. What you're saying, this is what I'm, what I'm, what I'm about to say, is going to tie into what you're saying about the hopelessness. And we're talking about the other side of the stream. Yes, we got to catch the jumping. That's very important. That's paramount. But we keep forgetting in these discussions. Now, I grew up poor just like you did. Okay, I had, I had seven brothers and one sister. And so yep. and my mother and father, you know, it's kind of hard to keep food on the table, so we had to work and all this other kind of stuff to help provide for the family. Yes, sir. I would have been a sweet yes, kid if it existed back then, okay? Yes, I couldn't sir. get a summer job. And the thing we keep forgetting about 
with regard to um, the, the hopelessness is, where, is uh, um, something that Dr. Carol Anderson said in her book, White Rage. She says that the war on drugs and the ensuing mass incarceration was the answer to the gains made in the civil rights movement. So unless we can do something about the people that are coming, and I have a solution, people that are coming out of jail and their lack of opportunity, which is also yes. hopeless, they will keep recruiting the young people to be drug dealers and, and being involved in car theft rings. Okay, so yes. we got to get to these older people before they get out of jail, before they get out of jail. This is the solution. And we need to, if you get more than one year in jail, you need to have a GED if you don't have one before you get out as a condition of release. And you should be given a living wage uh, jobs training job to where, uh, to where uh, you got to go to work every day or you're going back to jail. You got you to you finish that apprenticeship or you're going back to jail. And I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Um, I mean, not Dr. Judge uh, Pastore. Um, uh, she's a district court judge in, in, uh, in Baltimore. She's a good friend of mine. What she has yes, been sir. doing is she's been sending people to jobs and jobs training, okay? Instead of giving them a choice between that and jail. And she has a 7% recidivism rate because as I, 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 I've seen a lot of people turn life around, but I've never seen them do it without an opportunity to do something other than serving in that underworld economy to substitute that, okay? And we keep forgetting that as the key to reaching the people that's past school. And, and those people are keep going, and, and look, for yourself, Ask yourself this. Could you have been an FBI agent if you had a criminal record? If the drug country task force had a plan of drugs on you, okay? I could not, not have been a business owner if I had a criminal record, okay? I was born poor, yes. I own a business now. I have three master trade licenses. I could not have gotten those licenses with a criminal record, okay? Right. And hold so that thought right there, Tyrone. We're going to take a right. short break, and when we come back, I'll let Dr. Powers you put a lot on his plate. I'll let him digest that and, and explain his response to the audience. Family, you want to join this conversation like Tyrone did in Baltimore, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. You're speaking with Dr. Tyrone Powers, former FBI agent, right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB, and also in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. And good morning once again, family. 20 minutes away from the top of the hour with our guest, uh, uh, former FBI agent, Dr. Uh, Tyrone Powers. Before we go back to him, though, let me just remind you, coming up in the next few days, you're going to hear from Morgan State Professor Dr. Ray Wimbush. Veteran civil rights activist uh, Willie Rocasa Ricks will be with us. Also, Maryland State Senator Jill Carter and Temple University Scholar Dr. Nard Dove will join us. So if you're in Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in tight on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, you're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. All right, Dr. Powers, Tyrone uh, mentioned that we should have s- some reentry programs available for uh, folks who, you know, go uh, go astray and they come back and they're trying to get back in the uh, on the on the straight life. Uh, your your thoughts on what uh, Brother Tyrone said? He's absolutely right. And and the good thing about it, I have a, a, a close friend of mine who worked um, on some some programs in the city forever. Um, Leslie Parker Blythe, and she always say that it's not but when people come up with suggestions, it's and. So what Tyrone said is an and. He's absolutely right. It's not this or that. It's we have the opportunity, the ability, and we actually have the structure to do both. He's right. But those who are coming out of, of prisons, of institutions, need to be given concrete skills. Logically, think about this, Carl. 
the president of the United States, Biden, got through this infrastructure bill, which brought billions of dollars to Maryland and to other every other place to rebuild the infrastructure. The skills, when we see something like that, which may seem abstract, we may not even be watching the nightly news when they talk about a multi-billion, trillion-dollar infrastructure bill with some money coming to Maryland. But immediately, those who are in positions to deal with those who are coming back and being reintegrated should say, I need to give them the skills so that they can take advantage of those opportunities which are coming our way. They're building the new FBI headquarters in and in, in, in part of Maryland. They have, there's construction going on everywhere. So those skills need to be consistent with the need for the future, not just bringing them out and giving them skills or teaching them skills, but skills that Right now, that those of us who are in position of power and leadership who are watching these other things that maybe some don't have time to watch because they're just trying to take care of their families can say, well, we need to do welding. We need to do CDL license so they can drive trucks across. We need to do these things and even find those things. And I think this is the other point that Tyrone was making that would allow them to take, a, a, a take advantage of those positions, even if they have a conviction on their record. We need to do that research and say, I'm not just going to give you a skill that you can't use because you won't get hired because this is a prerequisite and your record keep. But we need to give you those specific and skills that will allow you to go back into and, and go back to work or, or, or develop a lifestyle or develop an economic foundation that will allow you not to default back to what you know because you're trying to make sure you have food, clothing, and shelter. So what he said is absolutely true. I am so glad to hear him talk about a district judge who understands this because, again, Carl, the reason why we work so diligently to get in these positions of power, whether it's a judge, whether it's the mayor, whether it's the CEO of the school system, whether it's the head of the of a correctional institute, the warden or the superintendent or the public safety director, is so that we could be in a position to impact change for our people. So there's no lead of you being a black judge and not understanding the condition that brought the people in front of you to you. It doesn't mean that at some point you may have to punish people and you may have to punish them severely. Someone who go out and take multiple lives, they've got to be punished severely. But on the other hand, you're intelligent enough to know that when people come before you who can be changed, who have took a path based on the fact that they believe there was no other path, that there may be something you to, for you to do in your sentencing and in your rehabilitation to change their life. And that when you change their life, you change the lives of others. I've said this over and over again. We talked about this last time when I was on. And the juvenile justice is all this conversation, all this yelling and screaming about the juveniles are out of control, they're carjacking people. There have to be consequences and repercussions for that. We know that. In our own households, no matter how poor we were, no matter where we grew up, our parents told us, you are not going to do that. There's going to be consequences and repercussions for your behavior, whatever those consequences and repercussions are. But the judges who are sentencing young people, we all said we need to arrest them, we make the punishment more severe. But if those young people get arrested, and some of them deserve to be removed from our community because they are a menace to us in terms of carjacking and violence. They're coming back. You're not sentencing them to a life sentence. So a judge should be saying to the juvenile justice system, how long does it take? If I sentence him to six months, will that work? Or how long does it take to take this young person 
and get them through a certified welding program or certified HVAC program or to make them a plumber because I'm not going to sentence them to six months if it takes you 12 months to change to train them, I'm going to send them to 12 months. And in my sentencing, I'm going to say during the course of this 12 month, they will enter into this welding program or this carpentry program. I don't want to just remove them so they can come back later. And the people who advocate the most for just going out there and get them out of here know damn well that they're not coming back to their community. They know that they just want them out of the way and off of the streets but they know they're not getting a life sentence. And whenever they return, they return to our communities, whether it's Park Heights, West Baltimore, East Baltimore. We want them to return better. We want to rehabilitate them. We want to change their life to give them skills, as Brother Tyrone said. We don't want to just remove them for the sake of removing them. We want to remove them and bring them back better. We don't want to throw them away. They know they're not throwaway children, even with the, the crimes or the ju- ju- juvenile delinquent acts they have committed. We want to make them better. But what happens now, and I sat on a juvenile justice um, committee, they'll sentence a juvenile to six months. The juvenile justice system will say, well, it takes eight months to get them through the carpentry program. So if they're only here for six months, all we can do is hold them. We can't do anything to make them better. We can't give them any skill set because we don't have enough time to put them through this particular program. There should be communication. Um, um, some kind of fusion with judges saying, okay, yeah, that juvenile needs to be removed, but now I'll talk to the juvenile justice people before I sentence them to any kind of juvenile delinquency institute, and I'll ask them how long does it take, what program can we put them in, and how long would it take to get them certified in that program, and I'm going to sentence them to success. I'm not sentencing them to just sitting in a cell or involving himself in more violence. That's the kind of forward thinking we should have. And Tyrone talked about a judge who understands that. I'm talking about we need leadership call, whether it's the mayor, whether it's the city council people, whether it's aldermen, whether it's in every position that understand that everything I do, there has to be consequences and repercussions, but everything I have to do, to do have to be done with a desire to make things better, not things worse. Again, a lot of people are yelling about dealing with these juveniles, but most of them know that whatever happens to these juveniles, they're not moving back next door to me. So I can go down to the state legislature. I can say, do this to them, do this to them, do this to them, knowing that they're not going to get a life sentence and knowing that I'm just making them worse and knowing that even when they get out, they're not coming back to me and knowing that I'm taking them from the juvenile justice system into the criminal justice system. And that means nothing to me. I just want to look good on the media saying we need to deal with them. Instead of- All right, let me jump in here and ask you this, though, uh, Dr. Powers. Yes, it goes back to the, our elected officials, because they make all these promises. We're getting up into election season pretty soon. You know, uh, Baltimore's looking for a new mayor, and then we've got the presidential elections, and in other cities they've got city council and alderman uh, spots opening up. And they make all these uh, promises, and when they get into office, they, they, they fall short. Is it deliberate or is that the culture once they, they they're elected that this is the way things are done and, and they, they they just have to go with the flow? That's a, that's a great question. When I was in the FBI, I said this several times, and this is the beauty of my career in the FBI, even though there were many, even people in my family were opposed to me joining them. When I worked public corruption, um, there was meetings taking place, even when people like Kwame Sienfume was in Congress the first time. And I was in the FBI and hearing these conversations. 
there were meetings taking place by people in positions of power said we only put them in power if we can take them out. So the people they were putting in power were people they had something on that if you do not vote this way, you can sound the way you want to. You can sound like a preacher on Sunday morning giving a sermon knowing damn well the congregation not going to change and that after church they're going to go back to their old ways. We'll let you have all the rhetoric you want, but when we ask you to vote on something or do something in our favor, you will do it or we will reveal this. I will tell you this personally. i never forget meeting with a state legislature down in Annapolis and asking him about a particular piece of legislation. And this is what he said to me, because he trusted me. And it was, I'm not going to name him because he trusted me. And he said, to, he was a professor at Morgan. He said to me, he said, Doc, I'm already compromised. If I don't do this this way, they're going to open up a tax case on me and I'm going to prison. He said, so tell me how I can help you with what you're asking me for without sending myself to prison. So even before we get into these offices, we don't, we don't have many Senator Jill Carters. We don't have people who don't really care what you say about them or what you do to them because they know they dotted their I's and crossed their T's and you're not going to catch them in any corrupt scandal. What we have is they guide these people into positions. They control their decisions, and then they almost threaten them because, again, they said this was a recorded message. We only put you, we only put them in office talking about blacks in certain positions if we can take them out. Should they get too out of control, they can have the rhetoric. They just can't have the power to make the change. So there's a there, uh, there's truth to what you're saying and two things can be true at the same time, but we have to vet our politicians, not just in how they sell, but when we are deciding to elect them, we have to begin to ask questions as they move in towards those offices. Let me ask you a question. Is there anything that will keep you from being free to doing to doing the people's will once you get into that position of power? If so, let us know now. We may, because they can't use it against you if we already know it. But be honest with us. Don't take the position and then have to become a puppet because they've got something on you that we don't know about, that they know about, and that you have to succumb to. So you're making certain decisions based on the expediency of not only of, of, of your political advancement, but also to keep you out of trouble. That's how we have to bet politicians. Now we bet them on how, how well they give a speech, and as you just said, Carl, on the promises they give. Part of those promises is can you carry that promise out? Is there something we should know? It doesn't mean that we won't elect you, that we won't, we'll disqualify you, but then we'll take that off their table of arrows to sling at you because when they bring that to us and say, look, we already know that, but he's still the best person for that office because he's going to advocate. I can't hold you hostage or extort you if you already tell the people before you get there what I would extort you with. And they still may be the best person for the. Everybody's got faults. Everybody's made mistakes. If you give us that, then they can't use it against you. Then you can go about the business of being the person and, and fulfilling the promises you made because they can't use that as a weapon formed against you. And we have to start telling our people heading for office that. We don't want you to be compromised. We want you to do what you need to do for us. Whether, again, not just the politicians, but the preachers. And we talk about this all the time that we we very seldom in a very long time 
um, have seen, but besides Jeremiah Wright, Martin Luther King preachers who are willing to speak truth to power no matter what, no matter the consequences. Dr. King called the United States criminals in the Vietnam War as a preacher from a pulpit, said we've committed more war crimes than any nation in the world, and he was brave enough to say that. So whether you're a politician, whether you're a preacher, whether you're a council person, an alderman, you have to be free enough to do the right thing, not the most expedient thing for your political career. All right, hold that thought right there. We've got to take a quick break. When we come back, though, Lisa has sent a question for you. Lisa says, Dr. Powers, why is it that the news reports about the young black juveniles in major cities when, in fact, crime is high with the white juveniles and many of the mass murderers of these schools' children are white? Much of the crime across the country is committed by white people, but it's not being reported in the news. That's a, Lisa wants you to respond to that. One. I'll let you do that after we take a quick look at the traffic and weather in our different cities and the news in Baltimore. Folks, you want to join this conversation with our guest, Dr. Tyrone Powers, former FBI agent, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. And also in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 at AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. And good morning once again, family. Minute after the top of the hour, our guest, Dr. Tyrone Powers. Dr. Powers is a former FBI agent. He's got a book out, by the way, family. The book is titled Eyes to My Soul, The Rise or Decline of a Black FBI Agent. What we're discussing here is some of the problems in our community, some of the crime problems, and he's linked them to the educational problems as well. Before we left, though, we had a tweet from Lisa. Lisa said, Dr. Powers, why is it that the news reports only about the young black juveniles in major cities when, in fact, crime is high with white juveniles and many of the mass murderers of these school children are white? It goes on to say, much of the crime across the country is committed by white people. Why is this not reported? Well, good good question. Thank you, um, Carl. Again, I just want to go back to thank you for having me on and giving me this opportunity to speak with your audience this morning. Um, racism trumps everything in this nation, and we, we can never, ever, ever get away from that. So that is what they're going to do in media. They're going to do that. Um, I think your previous guest that you had on this morning, I think someone called in to talk about the suicide rate among whites and blacks and the fact that the black suicide rate um, between 2021 and 2023 increased by 50%. The fact that young blacks are, are, are double the rate of young whites committing suicide proportionately in elementary school and in other places. Racism trumps everything and it's an impacted us psychologically. They have to, and they will continue, as long as they control media, as long as they're in positions of power, put out the narrative that they want about us. That there are people who absolutely unequivocally know of the dangerousness, let's say, of a Donald Trump and the racism of a Donald Trump. But there are people who will vote for him despite his misogynist attitudes, his sexism, because he somehow in them engenders racial pride or white supremacy. You know what I mean? He says, make America great again. Adolf Hitler, which is a statement that he stole from Adolf Hitler, Adolf Hitler, when he rose to power in Germany, and you can look at it online, it says, make Germany great again. So he just took that language and everyone who understand that history, whether we do or not, know that the line he is using is indicating to those who 
uh, familiar with that history, that his overall goal is that racism trumps everything. So it doesn't surprise me that they would focus on what black juveniles are doing, not the good that our young people are doing. The majority of our young people are not involved in carjacking, robberies, are not involved in dropping or are not involved in hurting or harming people. But they're not going to report that. They're not going to start, as as you talked about with your previous guest called The Connected Dots, they're not going to start the news broadcast this evening talking about the black teen suicide rate um, because they don't mind if we kill ourselves. They mind if we kill others and it impacts their businesses. And even if we're killing ourselves in our own community, if it impacts the economic stability of a community, then it's news. If you just go kill yourself, the psychological trauma that young black people or grown black people or those who are being reintegrated out of prison deal with is of no significance to the capitalist foundation of this nation. And so we have to understand that and we have to win in spite of it. So we're never going to get the report of white youth and how they're out of control and the mass shootings they're involved in the way we would get with black youth, because the goal is to make sure that consistently throughout the history of this nation and into the future of this nation, that no matter how bad whites are, people perceive blacks as worse. Remember this, Thomas Jefferson, who is, has a Jefferson monument in this particular nation. One thing he said, a truism that he said, despite his racism was that if A nation expects to be both ignorant and free. It expects what never was and what never will be. Ignorance and freedom can't exist in the same place. You can believe that you are free, but if you're ignorant, you're not free. So he was talking about impact in the education. Thomas Jefferson, in his entire life call, wrote one book. A lot of books have been written about him. He only wrote one book, Notes on the State of Virginia. In that book, he essentially said that blacks are inferior to whites mentally, physically. He said if you keep them in this nation, you're either going to have to exterminate them or they will exterminate us. When I was in the FBI, there are agents who believed that Thomas Jefferson was such a great man. The fact that he was participating in writing the Bill of Rights, the fact that he was participating in writing the Constitution, that he can't be wrong. In that book, Notes of State of Virginia, he said that black people will always be good orators. In fact, I'll read his exact quotes. He said, black people astonish you. This is a quote in his book. They astonish you with the strokes of the most sublime oratory, such as to prove their reason and their sentiment is strong, and imagination is glowing and elevated. They can sing. They're good musicians. But this is what he said. But, but he said he had never heard a black person utter a thought above the level of plain narration. And others believe that because they believe in Thomas Jefferson, that we are good talkers. We're good preachers. We're good auditors. But we are not concrete leaders that can change the condition of our people. And the media, again, begin to enhance that stereotype of Jefferson. Well, let me interrupt you and ask you, I got to ask, when you talk about Thomas Jefferson, he's raping our our young sisters. Did he ever talk about that? I mean, but but here's here's the deal, Carl. Did he he have a reason for that, though? Go ahead. Right. We, we, We know that. We know what Thomas Jefferson was, and we know he did. But the white people love Thomas Jefferson. And so what we watch in the media is a reflection of them knowing what he said about us and then putting that out. So the racism in this nation is never going to change. We need to work to change racist laws, right? Dr. King understood that. Dr. Martin Luther King said 
people keep thinking I'm trying to get white people to love me. I'm just trying to keep them from lynching me. He said only God can change a man's heart. What I'm saying by quoting this is that despite his contradictions, his advent, his abject racism, that white people believe in Thomas. He's got a monument. He, the things he said was no less vehement against people of color than what Hitler said, but he's got a monument in this country and we honor him. So to find in media where they will enhance or embellish or highlight when blacks go astray, but downplay when whites go astray shouldn't be a surprise to us. All I'm saying is despite that, because they're going to continue to do that. This is a nation steeped, born in racism, is that we got to win anyway. We've got to adapt, improvise, and overcome. we got to work to change the things that harm us. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be working to change laws and looking at those laws, but we've got to remember that the legislation created, but but, but for by a few, and I know you're having Senator Jill Carter on this week and, and, and Dr. Ray Renbush from Morgan, but for a few, the legislation they put forward is based on the philosophy of Thomas Jefferson, even though they know what he was, we know what he was, that is what it's based on. And so when we get people in positions of power, they've got to understand that so that they can counter that. Jill Carter's been fighting this battle over and over again about the, the juvenile justice legislation. We need to be harsher on them. We need to deal with them. But none of that legislation takes them from where they are to where they need to be. And that's what Jill has always been saying over and over again. So the fact that the media puts out this narrative that blacks are worse than whites, and it's been done since the inception of this nation, despite the contradictions, as you just said, Carl, despite the racism of, of Thomas Jefferson, they admire that man. And they've read his work, even if we haven't. And in his work, he said blacks are inferior to whites in mind, body, and substance. And he, he said they may not even be an original race. They may have been manufactured. That's what he says in the only book he has ever written. You can get it at Ina Pratt. You can get it online. Notes on the state of Virginia. He said black people may not even have been an original race. They may have been invented. So while we don't know that he said that, the nation operates on that foundation. Again, when I was in the FBI, they said this. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm telling you the truth. I testified before Congress to this. A document came across my desk. It's when they go out to interview white pe black people, remember this. They're emotional and not intellectual. They will get upset. They will, they will, they will give good sentiment. They will give a good sermon. I said, but they will not bring their problems to a logical conclusion. A scientific method starts with a hypothesis and then a logical conclusion. So their philosophy was let them protest, let them get upset, let them orate, but they will not change their condition because they don't know how to take words and turn them into actions. Again, we know this is not true because we've had numerous leaders, Marcus Garvey and, and Mary McLeod Bethune and, and Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois and Minister, um, the Honorable Minister Farrakhan and Malcolm X and the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. We've seen the work that can be done, but their philosophy is still the same and they will report it that way in every one of their media outlets. We got to hear that, but not ingest that. And then we got to win in spite of that. We're not going to change their narrative about us because they truly believe racism trumps everything. They truly believe that about us and they need to believe that they're better than us in every way. But despite their beliefs and their perceptions, we've got to develop concrete methods, plans and strategies as you, me and you talk about all the time, Carl, to win in spite of how they see us. 
because we're not going to well, well, let me jump in and ask you this, though. You're going through the FBI, and, and they're going up with those stereotypes. What was it like, you know, talking about us like that? How, how, did, you, how did you digest that kind of stuff? That's exactly right. I'm glad it's a great question. That's why exactly why I wrote the book, I Asked My Soul to Rise or Decline of a Black FBI Agent. And one hand call, I was so glad I was there and hearing this because I could have been on the outside and hearing this or reading this, but here I was experiencing this firsthand, experiencing the strategies, the implementation of those strategies, the prosecution. The, the prosecutions and how they actually go after black public officials and how black public officials give them the ammunition to go after them. If somebody's chasing you with a gun, don't turn around and throw bullets. I was watching the methods, the philosophies, the thought process, and I wrote about it and I told about it. And I was a part of a class action lawsuits by blacks who said, this is what's going on. And Maxine Waters brought me up to Capitol Hill where I told Congress this, but I was one person. And I was telling Congress this. They told us to, to uh, admit everything, I mean, deny everything, admit nothing, and use a pencil. So whatever we do in their community can be erased, and nobody can prove it anyway. And they won't stay on this issue anyway. I, I, the document that I just told you about, I spoke to Congress about. I spoke, with, uh, I spoke to others about. But here's the deal. They're not going to change. I am absolutely clear they're not going to change. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't work for change. We need legislation. We need pushback. We need protests. But that has to be followed up with concrete actions, understanding the fundamental thing that this nation is steeped in racism and that they're never going to change their view of us. We can't worry about their view of us, right? We've got to worry about how we put together concrete plans to save our young people, to take them from hopelessness to hope, to change the curriculum in the schools so that we have a a high graduation rate and not a high dropout rate that we don't keep talking about the fact that they're, that, that parents are the parents need to do better. But we also know there are households that are not conducive for living learning that where their parents who are addicted, we got to find out concrete methods to save those children, even though they're in situations like that, because that why is it not going to do that for us? And that's just right. No, no, that's all right there, uh, Dr. Powers. And, and I'm glad that you, you let us know what it was like doing that, working amongst those racists and you have to bite your tongue and swallow every time they t say something stereotypical about us and, and, and sort of ignoring your presence. But we got to take a quick break here and check the traffic. And when we come back, Brother Haki in Baltimore has a question for you. He's on line two. We'll do that as well. Folks, you want to join this conversation with Dr. Tyrone Powers? Reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB and also in the DMV. We're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 W. W-O-L, where information is power. Good morning again, family. Thanks for rolling with us all morning long. We're in another interesting morning, 21 minutes after the top of the hour, with our guest, the former FBI agent, Dr. Tyrone Powers. Dr. Powers, his, his book is titled Eyes to My Soul, The Rise or Decline of a Black FBI Agent. As I mentioned, we've got some folks who want to talk to him, so let's take some calls. Let's go to line two. Brother Haki's reaching out to us. He's in Baltimore. Brother Haki, good morning. You're on with uh, Dr. Powers. Uh, line two, Brother Haki. Can you hear me? Sure. Oh, greetings and good morning to you, Dr. Powers. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Good to hear from you, Haki. Always a pleasure. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you, Carl, for bringing him on two hours. We need his voice uh, for, you know, he, he said some very particular things, and I certainly appreciate it. Um, uh, Dr. 
A few years ago, you know, I mean, you you were a strong, you know, advocate. And that's, you know, of course, you still are. But, you know, I recall when the casinos came to Baltimore. And, I mean, how you described it was like sort of like a death knell uh, kill, if you will, for for the city of Baltimore. Um, You know, one, one concern I'm having now, for instance, now there's just this push for online betting you know, online gaming, et cetera, et cetera. And there's no regulation around this. And I'm afraid, you know, and sometimes I'm at, I mean, like I never go to casinos for nothing. Absolutely. Rarely, rarely go. I don't, you know, I never put a single cent in anything and never played the lottery. So, you know, I'm, you know, that's my level of consciousness. But now that we have, you know, people have access to over the, on their phone, ways to throw their money away, uh, you know, where there's no regulation and controls. I mean, this could be like even more dangerous, brother. And, and you know, you described it, you know, when, you know, like as organized crime of sorts, you know, from your experience. So if, if there's anything you can update us on what this actually entails, and I don't see how, you know, many, you know, black men, some rocking, red, black, and green, and then the Ravens jerseys the next day. So, you know, they gonna, many are going to fall into a deep trap, a debt trap with this. So if you could just speak to that. And I thank you. Thank you, uh, Carl, as well. All right. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be brief with it. You know, one of the things I said back then, and I'll continue to say, is you never, you never achieve a virtue with a vice. And they were talking about gambling, helping education. I said, you don't take advice because if that's the case, we can say, well, why don't we allow drug dealing and then we take the proceeds from drug dealing and pay for schools? You, that, that was a silly philosophy and many blacks bought into it. And you don't bring another addiction, which gambling is. They even have a gambling hotline when they brought it to an addicted people. If you have an addiction problem, because gambling, every addiction, is, as Israel Kaysan used to say, is a self-defeating philosophy or thought process. It's not just the drug or the substance, it's the thought process. And we allow them for our pleasure, for the pleasure of some, to bring an addiction to an already addicted people who should be thinking about getting away from addiction, addiction to anything, but certainly the drugs. I remember Curtis Mayfield wrote the song, um, um, you know, Nothing on Me, and he said, I'm so glad I got my own. I'm so glad that I can see my life as a natural how the man can't put nothing on me. And so it's, it's going to be more problematic. So that's why we've got to talk about it. I'm glad you're talking about it, Haki, because we have to talk about not just the joy of being able to the, the bet, but we are an addicted population. We talk about that all the time, the level of addiction in Baltimore, the level of addiction in Maryland, the opioid addiction, and then we throw in another addiction, and gambling is an addiction, and people have lost their homes. If you've ever been out to Vegas and going down to the other end of the Strip, where you have people who have gone out there and lost everything and are staying in these little shaggy hotels, they've lost their finances, their fitness, it's an addiction, and we just don't need that right now, and I remember going down to the legislature and they saying, you know, Doc, um, but we already got the lottery. Why can't we just add gambling? And I remember saying um, vividly, you know, just because I'm not a virgin doesn't mean I want to be a whore. So you're suggesting that because we've already got a problem, we should go ahead and add to it. Since we're already taking marijuana, we should take cocaine. And since we're always taking cocaine, we should take The logic is so off. And they think that they're talking to people who don't understand that it what we can't do what white people do we can't we we can't handle the addiction 
Uh, and they can't handle it either, but they can handle it better than us because they got all the power and the money. So we can't handle that same addiction. It's the last thing I'll say on this call. It's like the legalization of marijuana. I had a friend call me and said, Doc, you know, your agency at Powell's Consulting Group, can you provide some security for our um, cannabis place? I said, no, I, I don't want to be involved in that. I said, it's not that. I, I want the decriminalization of marijuana. I want black people going to jail for minor violations of that. But I don't want us to say that we need another drug and that we need to be sober. Right? We're not in the position of white people. We don't. And listen, there's 700,000 federal jobs that our black children won't be able to get to even if they legally use marijuana. We haven't even addressed that. Because marijuana is legal, the federal government still has it as a Schedule One drug. They had it on the same level as cocaine, heroin, and all the other drugs. So our children are doing something which they think is legal. They'll go get educated. They'll have a 4.0 grade point average. And then they'll apply for one of the federal agencies that require a top secret clearance, whether it's NSA or DEA or FBI or the State Department. And they'll tell them you're not qualified. He said, why? I said, but you use marijuana. But it was legal. But it is not legal on the federal level. If we're going to put that out there, then we should educate our young people that a two-hour high could end a 20-year career. And that doesn't make any logical sense. I've never wanted to be high for two hours and end up 200 and, and throw away a 20-year career or, or at a salary above 100000 But the reason that young people are making bad decisions, Carl, is because they don't have programs like yours telling them that, listen, because it's legal doesn't mean it's right. And there's a trick here. The trick is that you can use it legally, but you'll be out of 700,000 jobs. The trick is you can bring in gambling, but we're already bringing it to an addicted people who already have addiction problems, admitted addiction problems. And black leadership, the hope was from Marcus Garvey to Booker T. Washington to Boas to the Honorable Elijah Muhammad to Malcolm X, to Minister Fred, the hope was that black people at some point would become educated enough that we wouldn't fall for the okie doke, or as Malcolm said, be bamboozled and hoodwinked. And unfortunately, as Haki said, we still are. All right, 28 after the top of the hour. I'll take another call for you. Christian's calling us. He's in Malibu. He's on line two. Good morning, Christian. You're on with Dr. Powers. Good morning, Dr. Powers and Carla Nelson. I grew up in South Central L.A., about two miles where the FBI and the Central Intelligence Agency with the Iran-Contra scam, and you know what I'm talking about, where the government had a shadow government and brought drugs into the community over the 122nd where they had two boxcars filled with guns and ammunition yes, sir. to protect the, the, protect the drugs to come in. And what I'm saying is that you're talking about the street level as far as where the blacks is, but you didn't go far enough in your assessment that the actual government set up and constructed a legal war to finance by sending drugs into the black communities. They didn't do this in Palo Verdes. They didn't do this in Rolling Hills. That's why I got out of L.A. That's why I'm sitting up here in Malibu on the side of the hill, because I know L.A. County is the worst, most corrupt city in America. Worse than Chicago, worse than Baltimore, worse than D.C. We had Chief Baca, Sheriff Baca with the L.A. Uh, Sheriff's Department went to prison. His undersheriff, Daryl Tanaka, went to prison. We got two city councilmen currently in prison. We got Mark Billy Thomas, who's on appeal, who's going to lose. He's going. And we got another one getting ready to go to uh, jail. So what I'm saying is the FBI was acting as a conduit 
for the federal government when they sit down and plot stuff. Ronald Reagan, H.R. Haldeman, John Ehrlichman, Ali Noor, you know the deal. And you guys have said nothing about going after the people at the top, and that's where the only change is going to happen. What do you think uh, about that? Give him a chance yeah. to respond. Thanks, Christian. Go ahead, yeah, Dr. I think Powers. That's a good point. And, I, and like I said before, Carl, because I just want us to not be in competition with each other. That's not a but, that's an and. He's right. We need to talk about that issue, too. That's an, that's an and. Nothing he said is wrong. Nothing he said is in opposition to what we're saying. But he, he, he's only, it's an and. It's not a but, it's an and. But I would add to that. No doubt about it. It was written about in a wonderful book called Dark Alliance. I know about it in particular. I had a conversation even after Ricky Ross, Free Ray Ricky Ross, came out of prison. He actually called me. We had a conversation. He had read my book in prison, and we had a, con- a deep and, and detailed conversation about what happened and how that happened. But they're never going to be a means to an end. If you go back and look at how they brought drugs into our community and how that was done in the CIA connection. In fact, the CIA gave uh, went to the Vietnam, uh, the, the soldiers in Vietnam, and they came back the largest addicted population. They gave it to them so they could fight a war. We were a means to an end. Our community and that CIA drug connection, infusing drugs in the community was a means to the end. We were hoping that when we get black people in high positions, that they would address this particular issue. And what he said doesn't oppose what we're saying, but it's an add-on to it. And reality of the matter is, when I worked undercover with the FBI and a drug organization, a drug cartel that went from Columbia, South America, to Cincinnati, to Detroit, to Los Angeles, one of the cartel leaders who ended up being arrested said to me, he said, Doc, he, he, not Doc, but at the time, my, my undercover name, he said, Listen, we don't force drugs on anybody in anybody community. And this goes back to what Haki was saying, too. He was saying that we give people what they want. They're an addicted people. We bring them drugs. He said, in fact, we don't even want them to die because we would be killing off our customers. Now, that's a twisted philosophy. He was trying to justify the fact that you can't blame the cartels for bringing the people what they're begging and asking for, what they're addicted to. But Haki was talking about how they bring addiction to an already addicted people, how they bring cocaine and crack into a community where people are already addicted and hopeless, and then we consume it. But what this cartel leader was saying that we've never forced you to take drugs. We've never pushed crack in you. We've never put a needle in your vein. We just brought you what you want. It's a twisted philosophy. But it is true that we have been a means to an end for those particular agencies. And the hope was it didn't happen and it hasn't happened. Doesn't mean it won't happen. That we, the hope was that when we got black people in these positions, this was the hope of Garvey and everyone else that they would address and stop this from happening, that we would address it on high and or down low. We would address the problem with addiction in our communities through education, through redirection, and on high, we would, uh, we would address the corruption and bringing drugs to our community because the positions we held on the Supreme Court as governors, as mayors. And so that was the purpose of us getting in power. We weren't going to get in power to mimic the behavior of white politicians and white people in power. We weren't going to go into the FBI to remember the actions of white FBI agents, which is. You, you know what you may know about a call, but which is why they were going to take me to court. We we were not there. To, we would we were there to change things. That hasn't happened. I'm not hopeless, so I'm not I'm not convinced that it won't happen. But that's the kind of leadership that we should be um, putting in positions so we could address the same thing that Carla talked about. And Carla, we're not ignoring that. It's an and. It's not a but. 
and call Nelson's show, he addresses every every topic under the sun. So if we even if we didn't address it in these two hours, it's not because we're ignoring it. It's not because we're denying it. And it's an and. Don't let them put them in competition with each other. Say, I wish we would address this too, not that we failed to address this. All right, good point. 26 away from the top of the hour. We'll take a last look at the news, traffic, and weather in our different cities. When we come back, Gene in Baltimore has a question for you. Gene's online too, by the way. Folks, you too can join our discussion with Dr. Tyrone Powers, a former yeah. FBI agent. Reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. In the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 at AM 1450. WOL, or information is power. And good morning, family, and thanks for rolling with us this morning. I'm 19 minutes away from the top of the hour with our guest, Dr. Tyrone Powers. Dr. Powers is a retired FBI agent. His book is called Eyes to My Soul, The Rise or Decline of a Black FBI Agent. Before we go back to you, let me just remind you, coming up in the next few days, you're going to hear from Temple University scholar Dr. Nara Dove. Also, a Maryland State Senator Jill Carter will be here, along with veteran civil rights actress Willie Ricks and Morgan State Professor Dr. Ray Wimbush. So if you're in Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked and tight on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. Uh, Dr. Pass, I want to ask you about force multipliers. Before I do that, though, uh, Gene is calling us online, too, from Baltimore. Has a question for you. Good morning, Gene. Good morning. Uh, much respect for you, dear brother. My question is, would you or why have you not run for political office in Baltimore? I'll hang up and listen, and when you decide, I have a huge donation ready. And please give your contact information before you leave. Thank you. Yeah, I guess guess the short answer to that is that that has never been my goal. I've I've worked with and helped and and behind the scenes many people who I thought— would be great politicians. Some of them panned out that way. Some of them got caught up in it afterwards. I've done so many other things that I believe that is the mission that uh, God gave me to do. I do youth intervention all over the country, of outside of the country. I've been to um, to Cuba to again look at their education system, which is which um, uh, Bermuda. I've, I, the work that I've been doing, I serve as an expert witness on policing and use of force cases, training police officers, trying to change the philosophy and thought process there. So I guess it, I just didn't see it as, as my mission. I saw it as my mission to help. And I had a healthy, um, how do I put this? I had a healthy expectation that some of the people running for office would do the right thing, would turn this thing around, would be bold and brass and courageous and wouldn't care about whether they got reelected, wouldn't care about being popular, but would, they, would care about changing the lives of black people. And I, and, and I have to admit I've made some miscalculations in that area on occasion, but I've never thought about uh, running for a political position myself, not not that I was opposed to it. I just didn't see it as my mission. And that's that's the truth, the whole truth. All right, because I know a lot of people have asked that question. You get it all the time, I take it. I, I get it a lot, not only here, but, you know, when I travel across the country, Chicago, other places. Uh, you know, when I first came here, to believe it or not, call, um, when I came back from my career in the FBI and we started the nonprofits, the People's Plan to Dramatically Reduce Crime and the Children's First Movement, there were people in the city many of them white who came to me and say, look, what do you want? What position do you want? How do you, and I said, look, I, I want 
a change for our people. When I chose, when I worked to close down the Baraka School in, in Africa because they were sending black youth over there from the Baltimore City School System, but they were being abused over there, and I got information from contacts in Africa that that was happening. People said, okay, well, maybe you should, but that's never been... Um, been um, a, a goal of mine. And I think it's something that people have feared. In fact, there was a politician here who said, well, let's wait till he become more popular, then we'll crush him and make sure he doesn't get a political position. And that's a, that's a sick kind of philosophy that we're thinking about crushing people. But in reality, I never intended to run for office anyway. But they were already planning in case I did because I wasn't part of what they were calling then the black status quo or one of the black political organizations. I never had an intention of any way, but the fact that I was getting that information and it's just, it's just a sad statement, um, hopefully, but I'm still, I'm not pessimistic. I'm optimistic that we, we can get better and get better people in leadership positions. All right, 15 away from the top. Before we take another call, i got to ask you about force multipliers. You said that is a, a, a technique you'd use to combat the, the crime problem in Baltimore. Can you explain that to the audience? Yeah, you can't you can't do it as any 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 one agency, any one group. Hypothetically speaking, let's say if Baltimore City Police Department, um, we we call on them a lot to deal with the crime issues, and I understand that that's their role to serve and protect. Uh, but if they have um, twenty nine hundred officers, let's say twenty five hundred officers in a city of six hundred thousand people, twenty five hundred officers can't effectively serve and protect 600,000 people unless the people want to be protected. So you've got to get other helpers, other agencies, other people, other community organizations. So it has to be a unified approach. Sir Robert Peel, who is the person who's credited with laying the foundation for modern Western policing, said the people are the police and the police are the people. It's just the police are paid to do what they do and the people have the same mission that is protect and serve, make sure they're safe, make sure they're not victims. As the police, it's just the police are paid to do that. So when you don't have the numbers, and even in a city like New York, they have eight million. They have forty-four thousand police officers in New York, but they have eight million people, and forty-four thousand can't effectively police eight million unless the people want to be police, or unless you add some force multipliers. In our situation, the schools, the educators, the activists, the politicians who don't just go along to get along. I watched this whole thing in crime in Baltimore City where everybody wanted to jump on the bandwagon with the same message. Let's go crush these black youth rather than let's stop their behavior, stop them from being a a detriment to the people, stop them from victimizing people, but change their behavior. I watched people say, I run for taking credit for crushing this. And that's not a force multiplier. A force multiplier is a person who sees the problem, knows that there are not enough people involved to solve it, not enough agencies, not enough police officers, not enough educators, not enough teachers, and then add to that to multiply the force and giving us the ability and the numbers to address whatever problem it is. I can mean different things in different contexts. I've said to the police department all the time, stop talking about what you don't have. This is all you're going to have. Find out a way to effectively patrol the neighborhoods, whether you have a unified effort with Morgan State University and Calvin State University and University of Maryland people who understand constitutional and conscious policing to to give the people the protection and the presence they need instead of running around talking about what you don't have. Same thing. We have 2,000 churches in Baltimore City. We don't even 
another force multiplier there. We just need them to do what they're supposed to do. We have 2,000 churches and 2,000 liquor stores, and it seemed like the spirits coming out of the liquor stores are beating the spirits coming out of the churches, because some of those churches are mercenary institutions. In other words, people migrate in the city to get their... Uh, their um their 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 religious injection and they give ten percent, I guess like uh ten dollar crack payment, um and, and and ties and then they migrate back out and then the people here continue to suffer. So we have the numbers in churches. We just don't have the numbers in what Dr. King would call true churches. Dr. King called black churches at one time, which we never talk about when his birthday come up. He said black people have a philosoph- philosophical Christians, but, poli- but practical atheists. Philosophically, wow. we believe in God, we preach God, but practically we're atheists because we do everything that oppose the will of God in our actions, even though we can preach a good sermon and we can sing a good song and we can have a mega church. But practically, and that's what Dr. King said. See if they play that speech on his birthday this year, or whether they go back to his 1963 speech instead of his 1967 speech, where he said the black church had more religion in his hand and his feet than in his heart and his head. And he said if we were truly Christians, then we wouldn't have the problems we were having today because there's over a billion Christians in the world. See if they play that speech in January. All right. I got a question for you at uh, 11 away from the top there. It's from uh, Leroy's down in Louisiana. He says, ask him about Sister Asada Shakur. And will the FBI ever stop going after her? And how does he feel about Asada Shakur? That's your question, Dr. Powers. Yes, absolutely. And I can't I won't get into other details. But as I told you, I did travel to Cuba um, and I was I was able to um, to um well, anyway, I've been traveling to Cuba. Let me just say this to you: we could have we we could have resolved that issue. That issue could have been resolved when Barack Obama was in office. He had the legal authority and power to pardon her and bring her back home, and he chose not to because he chose political expediency, just like he chose in in in, in uh, Libya when they killed Muammar Gaddafi, and now slavery is reinstituted in Libya. We've got to analyze and critique that, not just because we want to criticize Barack Obama, but when we talk about Assad of Secure, the fact that she'd be pardoned and brought back, it's not going to happen under, obviously, Biden and Trump. It wasn't going to happen under Bush. But for eight years, we had the opportunity to resolve that issue as we resolved the issue with other people who white presidents had pardoned, who have done so horrific things, and Assad of was trying to help and secure freedom for black people, um, was involved in that shootout and self-defense mechanism was involved in it to the point that people in that prison system, even when she was arrested, helped her get out of prison and out of the country. Barack Obama could have solved that in the eight years that he was in office. Whether she'll be pardoned now and brought back here, I seriously doubt it with the presidential slates that we have coming up in the future. But we had eight years of an opportunity and we didn't do it. And at some point we need to discuss that because he could have did it with the stroke of a pen. Alright, 800-450-7876, away from the top there, racing the clock. Raw's on line four in Baltimore. Raw, can you make it quick for us? Oh, God, I'd like to thank the greater Yahweh, you brothers, and engineers for the opportunity. The White House is a rock house. Uncle Sam is a bullshit man. Who's the biggest drug dealer today? The government, the government, the CIA. Chairman O'Malley and the Hoover when we put that out years ago. But my point is, all the black Democrats are part of the problem. Taking their slave master, Joe Biden, that we're all roaches. And they put the crime bill to lock us up. Ooh. 
All right. Dr. Powers, you want to respond to anything he said? I, I, I think, again, I, I want us to get out of the party concept, but I want us to go back to, again, the student of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, Malcolm X, who said, I'm not a Democrat or Republican and have sense enough to know it. What he was saying is that find out who is moving in with our interests. And we, and we know, I don't think that in mass black people are support. They're certainly not supporting Biden sending weapons to kill 16,000 Palestinians over the group Hamas. And it's not Israel versus Hamas. It's Israel versus Palestine. 16,000 Palestinians dead women and children, children like our children. And now he's sending more bullets and more. I don't think people massly support that, but I think that is the philosophy of our political leaders, that they'll get behind him no matter how many people he killed because we are wedded to party rather than to people and purpose. All right. And before we let you go, the title of your book, how can we get a copy of your book? Um, of course, Everyone's Place, Brother Nati, who's a stable in Baltimore City, at Everyone's Place, everyone know there, or you can reach out to me at Powers at tpowersconsulting.com. You can get it electronically on Amazon and other places. But again, I highly recommend so that we support black businesses, Brother Nati, on North Avenue in Baltimore, whether you have to call them, email them, or go by there. I think that's the best solution. That's right. Brother Nati, good brother. Our family, we got to run. Before we go, though, I want to thank uh, Dr. Powers. Because, you you know, you're one of the few persons to have solutions to our problems. A lot of times we just talk about our problems, but you always, always come with some solutions. And we love that because that's what we're all about, well, about solutions. I thank you for being allowing me to come on. I think there's a lot of people with solutions called they just don't get heard enough. But your program, I just want to thank you tremendously because every time you call me to come on, you say, look, I want you to talk about the problem, but don't come on if you don't have solutions. So I think you've said it over and over again. You don't want people to come and make us feel worse about ourselves. You want people to come and explain where we are and then give some solutions to take us to a different place. So I appreciate you and I appreciate the program and appreciate you inviting me on. All right. Thank you. And thank you for those kind words. Summing it up correctly. Six away from the top of our family. we got to run. Stay strong. Stay positive. Please stay healthy. We'll see you tomorrow morning, 6 o'clock, right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power.